who'll be closing games in 2020 for all 30 teams? I'll ask Doug Dennis about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 25th. It's show number 10 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpens columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing the closer situations in all 30 Major League Baseball bullpens, an unorthodox league he recently drafted, and an unorthodox strategy in a normal league he recently drafted. He'll also have his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Nick Castellanos in Philadelphia, Jorge Soler in Miami, Kenley Jansen in Atlanta, and other big National League news. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Raymond Tapia in Toronto, Tanner Houck in the Boston rotation, Shane Baz in the hospital, and more American League news. And we'll have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Houston outfielder Jose Siri. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about contract rescruals. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Doug Dennis is in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I've been asking all the experts so far as we run up to opening day, how many drafts have you played in so far this year and how many do you have yet to come? Well, I just, uh, I, I usually do five. This year I added a sixth one that I just finished uh, drafting. It's interesting. It's, um, it's relief pitchers only. It's a relief pitchers only league. And the people that are in the league are people who only write about relief pitchers. That's crazy. How did you get that league together? I didn't get it together. They asked me to do it, and I said, why not? I mean, it's, uh, the categories are really strange. There are things like uh, relief wins is a category, which, of course, you know, and, and then there's, you know, saves and holds are together. Um, there's strikeouts, and, and there's, you know, ERA and whip. I mean, it's, uh, I think there's another category. I can't remember. Oh, uh, stranded, stranded base runners is a category. It's interesting. It's different. I would have thought that if you were doing a relief pitchers league, one of the categories might be how many runs bequeathed runs allowed as a negative category, something like that. But uh, it sounds interesting. Uh, how did you formulate your strategy for that draft? Oh, I didn't. I don't even know how to begin. So I just uh, decided I would take uh, relievers that I thought were the best uh, relievers. So hopefully that works out. I mean, I tend to think that that works out with most uh most leagues, regardless of category, when it comes to relief pitches anyway. Well, you and I were both in the Tout Wars American League only draft on Saturday, and you kind of had a little run-up to it. You spent 61 units on pitching, and all your pitchers are relievers. What was the thinking behind that strategy in a more regular format? 
Um, well, in AL Tout, as you know, um, there's no um, innings requirement. And so I thought to myself that starting pitching often goes for more than it's worth, particularly in the AL, particularly after you get through maybe the first couple tiers, you know, top, top pitchers. So I just thought I would give it a try and see if I could manage to win ERA and whip. And I think I, I like my, I like my team for uh, doing well in saves. I see you think I'm like middle of a pack. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But uh, the goal is to do really well in those three, you know, cause I'm obviously going to do terrible in wins and uh, strikeouts and then, you know, use their remaining money to uh, bully hitting. That was the goal. Yeah, I did look at, uh, at the strategy from that point of view, and uh, I gave you one each in wins and strikeouts, and even allowing for vulture wins, I don't think you're going to get past the, the second lowest guy. Uh, I gave you the 15 in ERA and whip with all your Lima skill guys and mid-pack in saves. So to reach the 95, that's 40 total for pitching, and you need 55 from the hitting categories. That's 11 per hitting category, fourth place or better in all of them. It doesn't seem to leave you much wiggle room. Uh, how did you factor all of this into the strategy and the execution? Well, a big part of it for me is how many points would I need to win? And looking back over the last... So last year, you would have needed 92. That's a lot. The year before, you would have needed 78. That's not so bad. Um, the year before that, it would have been 100. That's impossible. And then the two years before that were 80 and 84. So I tended to think if I could get myself in a range of around 80, then I could, you know, I could maneuver and try and figure out in season if I had to, how I was going to squeeze an extra point or two. So that was kind of what I was aiming at. I've been in the league for a while. I, did, I didn't remember that uh, somebody won the league with as few as 84 points. I always thought it was in the mid to high 90s. I remember uh, 100 not long ago. But if it's only 85, then it's sure a doable strategy because you don't even have to get fourth place in all the categories. It's more like getting sixth. Yeah. I, now, they didn't win with 84. They just had to beat the second place team. So the winner would win with more than that. But, but what I'm saying is, is you just have to beat second place, whoever that is. So. Right. Some years it's big and some years it's not. It's just a ton. I would have expected a reliever-heavy strategy like this, especially if you're counting on getting a lot of saves, that you'd want to get dependable saves with two or three of the established closers, but you didn't get any of the top saves, guys. Why did you not get at least one of Hendricks, Iglesias, Ryan Presley, guys like that that are locked in and on pretty good uh, teams to get saves? Because I really needed the money to make sure that I did well on the hitting side. And I didn't want to spend the amount of money it took to get one of those guys. I think all of them went for 21 or more. Um, and that's just a lot of money to spend on one slot. Um, and, I, and I do feel like I'm going to get incremental saves from every single guy that I got. I'm not going to get 30 saves. But I'm going to get some saves from every guy that I got. I don't know about Rosenthal. That guy still needs to sign. But other than him, I think I'm going to get some saves from everybody. I thought the unsigned free agent Trevor Rosenthal was a really canny pick by you because when he gets signed, and we can only assume that he's going to, it's almost certainly going to be in a high leverage situation. He's going to want a lot of money, and that puts the pressure on the team and the manager to give him those high leverage roles because uh, otherwise why pay the money kind of thing. 
you did get Scott Barlow of Kansas City, who goes into the season, I think, as the putative closer, but it seems to be shaky there. What's your thinking on Scott Barlow? Well, I think the thing that I don't like about it is that Mike Matheny doesn't really seem to care whether his pitchers have skills or not, which, of course, is the opposite of the way I look at it. But having said that, Barlow has the best skills in that bullpen, and so I always feel like cream rises to the top, and that's kind of how it went last year. It took him, I think, I think Matheny went through every single possible option before he got to Scott Barlow, but then once he got there, he realized that Scott Barlow was his best option. So I'm hopeful that that continues this year. Reminds me of, I think, Winston Churchill said that the uh, opposition party could be counted on to do the right thing once all the other options were exhausted. Yes, that's Mike Matheny, to a T. Also, a lot of second-in-line type guys, uh, Chad Green in New York, uh, Paul Sewald in Seattle, Matt Barnes in Boston, uh, Garrett Whitlock also in Boston, Diego Castillo in Seattle. Clay Holmes was the one that seemed to stand out to me as a little farther down the depth chart, but this looks like obviously the, the foundation of your strategy is to not only get guys who might get a handful of saves here and there and just aggregate, but there's a few of these guys who actually could see their way into the full-time closer role, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, it's much more of a uh, a quantity versus, I don't want to say versus quality because they're all quality, but I don't know who it's going to be. But I do think that all of them will get some saves. And if I luck into even one getting more than just some saves, I think I can win that category. Well, we know about the rising prices of closers so far in drafts and the price increases for stolen bases have been pretty well reported. What other trends have you seen that you think drafters might be missing out on, maybe subtler things that could lead to opportunities in their drafts? Yeah, the one thing that I think I noticed or that I cared about um, is is two things. One is that the um, you know we're adding a designated hitter to half of the teams in baseball. And that, that's important because it adds a lot of the usable bats that weren't there previously. And I also, at the same time, thought, or think, you know, from the projection, that from the middle of, you know, of the hitting, you know, if you, if you rank ordered them, from the middle down, it gets very, very flat. So it doesn't matter if you've spent, um, let's just say, um, $11 on a particular hitter versus getting a, a different hitter later in the in a draft or an auction for four dollars or you know it, it, their their differences are, are very small and so um, those are the two things that I think I noticed that I they might be because they run in tandem they're you know we're talking about hitters that are not in the lineup every day at the top of the order um, but um, it, 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 it tended to make me want to pay a little bit of a premium to get better hitters I was going to ask you about that too. You went pretty stars and scrubsy on the hitting side. You grabbed Jose Ramirez for 43. I think he might have been the second top guy or the top guy. I'm not sure if I remember. Uh, George Springer for 33. Aaron Judge for 31. Marcus Semyon for 25. Michael Conforto doesn't have a team yet for 19. And then nine other hitters for five or less. Explain why, if you're trying to amass a lot of stats, you went in a, in the direction that was so star focused and uh, maybe created some risk for yourself at the bottom end of the of the hitting lineup. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, Conforto needs to find a team right now. I mean, right now. I, I'm very. I wish he had a team. But um, that that problem aside, 
I really feel like the guys I got even at the bottom are going to get um, play appearances. I mean, I feel like um, guys like uh, Josh Lowe in, in Tampa is going to get in there and, and do well. I feel like Urshela is going to, you know, he's not a superstar, but he's going to get uh, the regular plate appearances. I feel like, um, you know, Houston's kind of stuck with having to use uh, Jeremy Pena, and I'm hoping that he works out okay. Um, there's some risk there. But at the same time, the idea was to get as many uh, plate appearances as I could from the bottom part of that list, and that was what I was going for. And having said that, you spent seven on Adley Rutschman, the prospect catcher in Baltimore. Given what we know about how Baltimore treats their prospects, which is don't bring them up unless somebody holds a gun to your head, why Adley Rutschman at, at seven, and how confident are you that he's going to be on the roster? Well, he has, he's, on, he's going to start the year, I think, on the injured list because I think he, he's a little behind after getting hurt. But I, I don't think it'll take very long. And when you look at who they actually do have, they just signed, um, you know, um, uh, what's his name? They signed um, Robinson uh, Chirinos. You know, I mean, that's uh, it really isn't going to take them very long to, to get Rushman in there because they I mean, they just can't use Chirinos all year. And if they do, though, I got them. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Uh, yeah. One of those situations where the guy yeah. t- the guy taking the yeah. place of the guy might be worse than just leaving the spot blank. Yeah. Yes. Well, if that's the case, then it'll be blank because I don't have another other option. <laughs> you also rostered Minnesota outfielder Trevor Larnock in the endgame for a buck. He doesn't seem 100% likely to be on the on the roster at the start of the year, much less in the starting lineup. What's your take on uh, Trevor Larnock? Well, he had a home run yesterday. I mean, come on. He's great. Do those I count? A dollar. He was a dollar. I was looking at guys that were, you know, around Larnock at a dollar, and the pickings were pretty slim. But I do, uh, I do know one thing, and that is that if I don't like Larnock, even by opening day, I can replace him with somebody who's a free agent. So, you know. We'll, we'll see how it goes, but if he makes the roster, then I'm then I'm happy with it. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the idea of replacing somebody from the waiver wire in an AL only league, I've found has been it's been very difficult over the years by design. I mean, that's part of the fun of the league. Uh, are there going to be outfielders you think in the early going in the waiver pool that will allow you to put a guy who's going to get some plate appearances on your roster in Larnick's place? Should it come to that? You know, it's interesting. It's happened for me. Um, I want to say maybe two or three of the last um, four years. Typically, um, though, you have to jump on somebody really, really early in the year, like the first couple of weeks. And if you hit it right, you actually get a real player. But, um, yeah, I don't know who that player is yet. And I think it's harder to tell right now because spring training has been so compressed um, that just getting people um, reps requires teams to use guys on backfields and in places where you can't see them and you don't really know what's going on. So I think, um, I think the more we get good news, the better chance I have. Are you trying this strategy in any other drafts, notwithstanding the draft where you have to take all relievers, but, uh, are there any other drafts you plan that would make this strategy workable? And if so, did you try it there? God, no, no. I mean, if it's a, if it's something like NFBC where there's a snake draft, you really have to get a balanced team and you really can't um, afford to do it. You know, something like this, you would, you would, you would, you, you would certainly come in, you know, tear towards the bottom if you try to do that in a snake draft. And then um, I, I, you know, in labor, there's a, there's a strict innings requirement that makes it very tough 
Um, I, I back in the day, I used to get four starters because you could make it, you know, with four starters. Nowadays, that that's not enough innings, so um, you have to get five or even six starters, and they have to stay healthy. I mean, it's difficult. So you have to you have to get starters in these other leagues. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Doug, you've done some first-rate work in your columns this season, as always, I should say, looking at not just individual relievers, but at bullpen situations. And before we dig into those, how did you become the bullpen's columnist at Baseball HQ? Oh, my gosh. This was a long, long, long time ago. But um, I was, at the time, there wasn't social media. I was actually talking almost on a regular basis with uh, John Hunt at USA Today and Rob Nyer at ESPN uh, via email just about, you know, not just fantasy baseball, but just baseball decision-making. It was right around the time Moneyball was just about to be published and come out. And we were just talking about Bill James and different things and what was going on. And um, both of them encouraged me to uh, write to Ron Chandler, who was looking for, you know, to, to hire people to write for him. Um, and so I said, fine, I would do that. I like doing that. So I contacted him. And he said, well, send me a writing sample. And I thought, well, what's a better writing sample than writing about the one thing that nobody wants to write about, which is relief pitchers. So I sent him an article about relief pitchers. And he's like, great, you're my, you're my uh, relief pitcher uh, columnist. And so that's, I've been that ever since. Would that it were so easy to get into the business nowadays, especially starting out in a paying job nowadays, it seems like you got to do your apprenticeship working for free and then you, and then you try to work your way into a paying gig. Yeah. You, you've been getting paid uh, all along. Uh, when did you join Baseball East Crew? Do you remember? Well, the, so the writing sample part and all that was back in like uh, September of, of 98. And so uh, he hired me right after that, and I went out to the Arizona Fall League um, Symposium, which was pretty new then, um, and then started uh, writing actual articles, um, you know, in that off season. I think that's around when I started at Baseball HQ as well, late 90s. I don't remember exactly. I have a little plaque that, remember when we went to yeah. Chicago and Ron yeah. gave us those? I've got that somewhere, but I, huh. I don't know where it is. I've moved a couple of times since. <laughs> it's one of those things that ends up in a box somewhere. The only yeah. baseball trinket I have actually sitting on my desk, I have a Major League Baseball that I got in a ballpark once, but I've got a little, uh, I've got a little action figure of Joe Morgan. Oh, wow. Sitting on my desk. And it's a pretty good likeness, actually. And wow. uh, the story of that is I was working for the paper in Regina, and I went to a show. It was uh, Guadalcanal Diary, uh, uh, sort of an alternative band probably nobody remembers anymore, but I liked them. They, I thought they were really good. And in, I was wearing my Reds jacket because that was the jacket I wore to stuff like that. And uh, lo and behold, this young lady comes up, and without a word, she just hands me this Joe Morgan action figure a joe oh, wow. morgan a joe morgan rookie card in a cell in a like a laminate and something else that had to do with the reds i think it was three other baseball cards that were like reds rookie cards or you know remember those old cards that had three oh, rookies yeah. on the face yeah it was oh, one yeah. of those and uh, i don't have the cards anymore i don't know where they are but i still got my little joe morgan uh, my little joe morgan action figure so that that's what i uh, keep around when i'm doing my baseball writing if i have to you know get writer's block or anything like that uh, your most recent update doug that was tuesday of this week in the column and you looked at some recent signings and i have to say you weren't upbeat about ian kennedy returning to arizona i think i know why but explain to our listeners 
Yeah, the problem for me with Ian Kennedy, I mean, and let's be honest, Ian Kennedy's had a very long, excellent career. It's not like he was, you know, was terrible or anything, but he's at the point in his career where he really needs everything kind of running in the right direction. And going to Arizona, that ballpark is very difficult on guys who give up lots of home runs. And in the last two or three years, Ian Kennedy's been giving up lots of home runs. So I don't like the, I don't like the location for him. Um, and I really worry that he's just going to, you know, give up lots of home runs. Has that been true even after they started using the humidor to try to deaden the balls a little bit? Um, not as bad, but bad enough for someone like Ian Kennedy, who gives up home runs pretty easily. You're right about Kennedy's record. I, I looked him up in his earlier stint with the Diamondbacks, and, you know, I didn't remember that he was a starter in that stint, and a pretty good one, too. 45 wins in three full seasons. Uh, fell off in his next partial season before he got traded. 355 ERA, 119 whip for the three years. That's pretty good work for a starting pitcher, especially in Arizona. Yeah, you would laugh at this, but so just a little anecdote. My daughter, um, when she was, like, young in high school, her, the first boy she ever dated just happened to be named Ian Kennedy. And so that guy was on my team throughout all of that time. Um, and, 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 and she cannot believe that he's still in the league. I mean, she's, you know, she's almost 30 now and, and you know, Ian Kennedy's still, you know, chugging along in the league, uh, been around forever. And, and I always tell her like, Oh, I got Ian Kennedy again. And she's like, Oh, not again. You know, cause she broke up with Ian Kennedy like years and years and years ago. And I'm like, I was reminded. Yeah, I when I took a look at the uh, at the Ian Kennedy stat line, one thing you do notice is that the home runs just kept getting higher and higher on a per nine innings basis, and it seems to be a bugaboo that he's highly unlikely to figure out at this late stage of his career. But I guess you never know if he could just generate a few more swings and misses and a few more ground balls. But then you could say that about every pitcher who ever lived. Well, yeah, I mean that's a, that's the secret to what to Mark Melanson, who's in Arizona, right? Is the fact that he. Um, you know, doesn't do that. He does everything else wrong, but he doesn't give up home runs. Yeah, a lot of ground balls there for sure. And it's served him well. I mean, for a guy with, as you said, limited skills, Mark Melanson's been on a lot of winning uh, fantasy teams, I'm sure, because nobody ever believes it. Year in, year out, we say, look, oh, Mark Melanson, uh, one of these years he's going to lose the job, and he never, ever does it, it seems to me anyway, from just from memory. I had Mark Melanson on a few teams, and they did usually did pretty well. Uh, Alex Colomay, I had him a couple of years ago in tout. He signed in Colorado and it would look like, based on this shabby bullpen that they've put together, he could be a closer, but you're not sure he will be for long anyway. What better options does Colorado have, and why Why not uh, Alex Colomay? Well, you know, better options. I mean, I'm not going to say everybody's a better option, but they're, you know, he's not better than them either. That's the problem. I mean, he's he's fine. He's okay. But so is Carlos, you know, Estevez, you know, Daniel Bard, you know, Robert Stevenson. They're all just sort of met in a stadium that's very, very difficult to pitch in. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, I'm sure they didn't sign him just to be like their fourth best uh, reliever. Um, and if he, you know, if he plays okay to begin with, he could very well uh, hold the job for a few weeks. But I don't see him holding it all year by any stretch. And, um, I think they're going to have difficulty no matter who they put in there. What are your plans for the column for the rest of the preseason? Well, typically this time of year, what I do is I we kind of have a set list of, of topics like, you know, 
things like gambles or or good you know sleepers or whatever and this and it's really not really that because what's a sleeper these days anyway um but but what i do is the same thing almost every time which is i'm helping i'm trying to help people by making lists of pitchers that are similar or fit a certain you know role or 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 topic and so i'm trying to use filters through the projections and then once I've filtered them, it come, you know, the, the, the pictures that come out, I try to give some context and talk about them. But the goal is to end up having, here's a list of players so that when you're in your draft or in your auction, you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, I need a guy like this. And, and thank you, Doug, you've given me a 12 to pick from. Yeah, it's always good to have that list, especially in the end game when you're looking for just the right kind of guy to match up. That's good. Uh, once uh, the season starts, Everything switches, of course. Uh, how does your bullpen column go in season? Well, it's the same idea, but it's often based off of news. So, you know, we'll get some news or we'll get some information. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to talk in some way. You know, for instance, Colorado just changed their clothes or what happens? You know, it's like, okay, well, let me look at Colorado's bullpen and we'll analyze it the same way that we do in, you know, the preseason columns. So it's really just picking apart skills and whether you think people can succeed or not. And if they are going to get the role, you know, how, how do you see it going? Um, those types of things based off of news. But sometimes, you know, once a month, we still take a look at the skills overall and say, okay, here's kind of how it's ranking out and here's how these pitchers are doing. So a lot of different things. Yeah, it takes on more of a news analysis kind of vibe, uh, like all the columns do at Baseball HQ in season. People want to know something happened, a trade, an injury, something like that. I want to know where the opportunity lies. And you and Stephen Nickrand, who writes the hitter and starting pitcher batters guys, are really excellent at finding those guys actually a little bit preemptively too, which is important. Well, that's the goal. I mean, the goal is to make sure that the people who are our subscribers are getting a leg up on the people who are not, right? That's the sales pitch, the, the unique selling proposition, I think they call it in, in marketing classes. Uh, Doug, this has been very interesting so far. I want to go through all the bullpens in Major League Baseball for your take, but let's uh, have a quick break here. I'll talk about uh, BaseballHQ.com and some of the other things that are going on, and I'll have you back in just a couple of minutes. Sounds good. Doug Dennis is the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later in the show with bullpen outlooks for all 30 big league teams and his boons and banes. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news, Ray, with the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In research and analytics, you heard Ray mention Ed DiCaria's terrific research article crunching mountains of NFBC data to give our readers a much finer and more detailed understanding of where players are going in snake drafts. In the Market Pulse, one of our favorite columns of the year, Matt Cederholm, scours through auction data to find players whom the market is mispricing low, creating bargain opportunities like Tyler Stevenson, Will Myers, Bailey Ober, and Diego Castillo. In playing time tomorrow, as you heard, Brent and Ray look at the American League Central, and Jock Thompson has the American League West, looking for players thrust into the big league limelight, including Jeremy Pena, Joe Barlow, Aaron Loop and Archie Bradley, and Kevin Smith. And those are just a few of literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, 
We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's other column, The Big Hurt, and, of course, we have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report and leading off our National League news and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Been a pretty busy last week or so, so let's start with the latest news that we have. Uh, Randall Grichuk has been traded from the Toronto Blue Jays to the Colorado Rockies. Raymo Tapia goes back in the other direction. I think there's a bit of cash going to Colorado and a prospect coming back. Uh, Jock Thompson covered this story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. I have to say this looks advantageous for Grichuk from a playing time perspective, but what does Jock have to say? Grichuk gets a nice bump moving from a contender to a third-tier club with playing time available in a great hitter's park. He's always streaky, but Coors Field should put a floor under his 20-plus home run power and improve his poor batting average. Uh, last season, Grichuk had 22 home runs, 241 batting average. He'll take over Tapia's uh, vacated outfield playing time and more. He's still a plus defender in right field, where he'll likely share time with 37-year-old Charlie Blackman. And Grit Blackman now projects to get most of Colorado's DH at-bats, with uh, left fielder first baseman Connor Joe looking like a slight playing time loser. I know a lot of people think that Coors Field is actually advantageous for home runs, but I've heard from Todd Zola and from others that, in fact, it isn't. Uh, it's, a, it's a big advantage, as, as Jock suggests, is that it's a big park and the ball travels well, and that gives more space for those well-hit balls to land in for, for hits and for extra base hits, not necessarily for home runs, though. Yeah, I, th- I think that I've seen the same thing, that, that Coors Field is... Uh certainly going to improve batting average, whether it will improve home runs uh, by a, a large amount, uh, probably not. Uh, but certainly with a guy like Grichuk, who's, uh, whose problem has been a low BA, uh, and, and he does have fairly significant power, uh, the, the, the power should still be there and the batting average should go up. Yeah, the uh, I think the power that we expect might actually dwindle a bit here, Nick, just because of where he's coming from. His home runs last year particularly, I mean, in that little park in in Dunedin, Florida. Then they they played in Buffalo, which was a bit of a bandbox. And even Rogers Center is fairly favorable for home runs. So Grichik was hitting in an ideal hitting environment for power hitters, and he goes to a somewhat less ideal environment in that regard. He will get more playing time, and he will be in the middle of the order, but the order is not nearly as powerful as Toronto's. So it's a kind of a a give and take. I would expect Randall Grichik to actually gain pretty much across the board, except for home runs. I wouldn't expect to see a big increase and might even see a drop off of a couple of home runs here and there. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think that's, that's, uh, that's the likelihood. Uh, and as you said, going to a, a fairly, a weaker lineup uh, might actually hurt him a little bit in terms of uh, RBIs and runs scored. 
But had he stayed in Toronto, of course, he would have lost playing time anyway because they have such a strong outfield. And even when he was hitting, he was hitting down in the seventh slot, the eighth slot, because uh, of, again, because of so many better hitters that they had to choose from. It looks like in Colorado, he'll be a little closer to the middle of the order. Yeah, very definitely. I think that's that's true. And uh, I, and for Colorado seems to uh, seems to like guys like Gretchuk with some uh, experience, uh, veterans and. You know, that makes poor Connor Joe, who looked like he might begin to blossom, uh, probably getting a cut in playing time. Moving on to Cincinnati, Nick, the news that the Reds have been making so far in this offseason is throwing guys overboard, sending them elsewhere in what looks like a, a complete teardown. But then, surprisingly somewhat, they turn around and they sign Tommy Pham to a contract. What do we make of that? I think Tom Kephart covered that for Baseball HQ. Now, Pham provides Cincinnati a much-needed right-handed bat for a lineup that's very heavy on left-handed hitters. Uh, likely to see extensive playing time in both left field and at DH, uh, including a lineup spot versus all opposing left-handed pitchers. Uh, Pham production has been hampered in recent seasons by a very heavy ground ball rate. Uh, been some speed erosions the past two seasons, corresponding with his uh, hit rate decline. And seems a bit of a wild card uh, at this point. Uh, AAC reliability. But uh, not sure what to expect as he begins aging a bit, and uh, uh, it, it's uh, it's an interesting move for Cincinnati. I'm not sure it uh, is a real interesting move for fantasy owners. The only thing I can think of that might interest fantasy owners, Nick, is the fact that he does run or has had the experience in past of stealing a few bases, and we all know that stolen bases are being valued at a premium level in a lot of drafts this year. That's very true, and so it might that that. Part of his game uh, may be very useful if you can get him at the right price. It's always about the price. The Phillies, who had already signed outfielder Kyle Schwarber, have also now signed former Reds outfielder Nick Castellanos. He gets a fairly big deal, five years, $100 million. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com, and he noted that nobody's going to mistake either Schwarber or Castellanos with Cody Bellinger with the glove. So how are the Phils going to manage this situation with basically two DH-style players who don't offer a lot in the field? Yeah, Phil's right. The, Fed, the Phillies didn't sign either of these two guys to shore up the outfield defense. And at this point, we're expecting Castellanos to play left most days while Schwarber is the DH, but that's subject to change. Castellanos is coming off his first uh, $30 rotisserie season of his career on the strength of a 309 average, 34 homers, 939 OPS. Uh, so a, a very strong season, a good time for him to sign a, sign a strong contract. 35% hit rate fueled a bit of that production but he's actually had a higher hit rates in his career. His career hit rate is 33%, so that wasn't that unusual. And, of course, they'll have fantasy first-rounder Bryce Harper in right field, but they might still also be looking for someone to patrol center field. Any guesses? Well, right now, our baseball HQ team our monitors are pretty much splitting the center field playing time between Odubel Herrera and Matt Vierling. Uh, Odubel Herrera would get the big side of a platoon, but his best days are well behind him. And he's going to start the season probably on the bench with uh, uh, or on the DL. Uh, strained as oblique, looks like he could be out four to six weeks. Uh, Herrera doesn't walk uh, a ton, 6% walk rate. Below average power, uh, 156 ISO. Um, does, uh, does make a, bit, a lot of contact. Uh, and Herrera was above average in center field last season. We're projecting a $4 season, mid-250 batting average, single-digit home runs, stolen bases. 
high 30s in runs and RBIs. And, of course, we'll have to scale that that uh, projection down a bit if he misses six weeks of the season. That's, what, basically about uh, 20% or so? That's a good chunk of the season to miss if, if it's that much, yeah. Well, I presume fantasy managers can expect more production from Jorge Soler than they will get from Odubel Herrera. Soler has signed with Miami, keeping Phil Hertz busy out there in Hawaii on this story as well. How does Soler figure to produce in a park that's very tough on home runs, minus 16% for right-handed hitters like Soler? Yeah, it's not clear right now whether Soler will patrol a corner outfield position or be used as the DH. Uh, the last few seasons have been a bit of a roller coaster for him. In 2019, he led the American League at home runs. Then in the short 2020 season, he could only muster a 222 expected batting average, although he did hit eight homers, 149 at-bats. That's 30-plus home runs in a 600-at-bat season, and his skills backed up the power with a 151 power index. Last season was a tale of two cities. Over 360 plate appearances with Kansas City, compiled a 658 OPS. Then was traded to Atlanta, had an 882 OPS, over 242 plate appearances, and of course hit three homers in the World Series. It's worth monitoring how he's used if he's primarily a DH, that affects the playing time of Garrett Cooper and Jesus Aguilar. If Soler plays the outfield, that affects playing time of uh, Jesus Sanchez and Brian De La Cruz, among others. Uh, so, I, you know, to monitor usage fairly closely, I think, as we approach opening day, see what those lineups are looking like and how he's likely to be used uh, in, the, in the lineup. And, of course, we don't need to monitor the lineups to see if Jorge Soler's going to play. He's going to play based on this big contract and uh, probably the biggest name and the best hitter in that lineup. But it is going to be worth monitoring, as Phil suggests, to see who's not going to play as a result of this. Kenley Jansen signed a one-year deal with Atlanta. Phil Hurts on this story as well. Uh, can't be good news for managers who have Will Smith on their rosters. Uh, no, indeed. Jansen's signing... Uh, Arrival challenges the idea that Will Smith was locked in as Atlanta's closer. Uh, our baseball HQ analysts are giving Jansen uh, about two-thirds of Atlanta's saves, Smith the rest. Jansen seems to be coming off a very good season as the Dodgers' closer, but I understand there are some questions. Uh, he was good, 222 ERA, 104 whip, 31% strikeout rate, but there were a few warning signs. Uh, XERA of 393 tied for the worst of his career. Walk rate was 13%, his worst in a decade. And for the first time, his BPV dropped below 100, uh, still low at 90, which is very good. BPV is base performance value. It's a combination of all the metrics that Baseball HQ uses to summarize uh, a player's skill profile. How did Smith's 2021 compare with Jansen's? Well, Smith's XERA was 394, almost exactly the same as Jansen's. His Strikeout minus walk percentage of 21% was slightly better than Jansen's, 18%. And his BPV was well over 100 at 116. And 116 is a really good score for any pitcher. Actually, Jansen's 90 is not horrible. We should say that. I mean, I think 70 is about average. So he was an above average pitcher. He just wasn't above average to the extent that he has been in the past. And I think we have uh, a 200 BPV is what we call vintage Dennis Eckersley level. So just to give people an idea of the scale, uh, none of these guys is vintage Dennis Eckersley, but... Both of them are pretty good, and I think the fact that uh, Jansen's right-handed probably gives him something of an edge in a, in a baseball environment where right-handed pitchers tend to become closers, or I guess I should say the other way around, where closers tend to be right-handed pitchers. 
right? Yeah, I think it's you know it's it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out in Atlanta and and also of course in uh, in Los Angeles uh, where we'll see what they t- what they wind up doing with their closing situation. Well, Doug Dennis will be on the show for part two, and he'll touch on the Jansen Smith situation when we go through the team's bullpens and the Dodgers situation. So let's continue our National League news report with a bit of speculating. Ryan Bloomfield, in his speculator column, headlined, Searching for the next Cedric Mullins. Boy, wouldn't we all like to find the next Cedric Mullins. In that list, he mentions Chicago Cubs outfielder Rafael Ortega. Is Ortega really ready for a Mullins-like breakout? Well, Ortega really benefited from the Cubs' fire sale at the 2021 uh, trade deadline when the team traded outfielder Jock Peterson and especially Chris Bryant. So given a chance, Ortega put up Mullen-esque production in just over half a season. 291 batting average, 11 homers, 12 stolen bases, and 296 at-bats. That's a 2024 in a full season. But Ryan says not everything was wine and roses for uh, Rafael Ortega at the same time. That's right. In particular, Ortega's near 300 batting average was the result of a 35% hit rate. Uh, home runs aren't entirely backed up by a league average 99 power index and an 86 expected power index and a 12% home run per fly ball rate. Uh, he did have excellent speed metrics that continue su- support continued stolen base production, but success rate was under 70%, which will lead to green lights if he doesn't get the rate up to about 75%. Uh, that leads to some positive uh, positive runs effect. Hey, Nick, uh, do you want to pick up that last bullet? You said green lights. Oh, yeah, which will lead to, okay, yeah. While he did have excellent speed metrics that uh, support continued stolen base production, his success rate was below 70%, which will lead to red lights if he doesn't get that rate up to 75%. That leads to positive runs effect. Ryan wraps up his analysis on Ortega by noting he does look pretty solid for playing time in Chicago. Yeah, it's a pretty shaky uh, Cubs team. There will be a lot of competition for the outfield playing time. We can expect uh, newly signed Japanese uh, import uh, Seiya Suzuki to play pretty much full time. So that leaves two outfield spots for the likes of Clint Fraser, Ian Happ, Jason Hayward, and a couple of others. And Ryan advises keeping in mind that Ortega wasn't much of a prospect and doesn't have a noteworthy track record. But at this time last year, probably nobody thought much of Mullins, who was a 7C prospect with nothing much in his career before winging up a 30-30 uh, season in 2021 with a near 300 batting average on, on 150 runs plus RBIs. Interesting times. Uh, of course, everybody wants to find the next Cedric Mullins. Uh, thanks to Ryan for picking out a few guys who might fit the bill, and uh, thanks to you, Nick, for helping us out. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. Hello, PD. Good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, let's start with a trade that was announced not too long ago. Randall Gritchick leaves Toronto to go to Colorado. They get Raymond Tapia coming back. I talked with Nick about this from the Rockies' perspective, but I have to think that from the Jays' perspective, it doesn't look like such a huge deal, especially as far as playing time goes. I think that's right, but I often defer to you on the Jays' questions here since you're the local observer. But let me you know, let me try and sort of recap it, and you tell me what you think. You know, I, I think it's pretty clear why the Jays would explore this option. I know the Rockies were 
getting a fair bit of praise for quote unquote winning this trade, but Tapia seems like a better fit onto the Jays roster. You know, that's a very right-handed lineup and Tapia coming from the left side, you know, offers them a little bit of balance in terms of playing time. Like you said, it looks like it's basically a transplant of Grichuk for uh, Tapia in the outfield playing time. We've got Tapia at 65% playing time in that outfield right now, which is basically for a lefty full-time playing time versus right-handed pitchers, which I think sounds right. Uh, So we've got George Springer up at 85, but then Gurriel, Tiascar, and Tapia are all in the 60-65% range in the outfield with Tiascar certainly getting in particular and probably Gurriel getting some DH at bats as well. So, you know, that's sort of a between the three outfields and the DH, that's sort of a four guys for four spots situation there. I guess the open question is, is there an opportunity for someone other than the outfielders to get a decent chunk of DH time? And I guess I'm looking primarily at both the catchers, Kirk and Jansen. Will they make use of both of them at some point? I think that's likely. They also have to find some playing time for Kevin Biggio coming off of a pretty weak year last year, but you know he had been penciled in at third, but of course then they went and traded for maybe the best third baseman in the last 10 years, especially defensively, in Matt Chapman. So now Biggio's kind of on the outside looking in. He st- could still figure into the second base playing mix, along with uh, some other options they have out there, but Kevin Smith got sent away as well, so maybe Bidju just fits in at third. I think uh, Tapia is probably going to get what Grichuk got, as you say. He's going to get part-time at bats, but because he's left-handed, they'll amount to full-time at bats. I'm also curious about the possibility that Tapia contributes some stolen bases as a pinch runner, pinch hitter type of guy late in games when they need the left-handed bat off the bench. Having said that, most of the right-handed bats in the starting lineup are actually pretty good. So, you know, there might be not as many exactly. uh, not as many platoon advantages to pinch hit late in games as they might be on other teams. Uh, for the DH, I think the favorite is uh, Alejandro Kirk because he can hit, although they might want to uh, ease up on the playing time there because if they plan to have him catch at all very, uh, very often, then they don't want to also add to his physical burdens by having him DH and run the bases and so forth. And watching uh, Alejandro Kirk run the bases is a treat in and of itself. May I just say, <laughs> it's like one of those little dogs, uh, Shelties or, or those little uh, terriers that has the little tiny legs and just beetles along as quick as it can based on two-inch long legs. That's kind of what Alejandro Kirk reminds me of. Quite an image, yeah. But. Tapia had 20 stolen bases in Colorado. He hit over 300 the year before. Is there any reason to be interested in his speed, maybe in the end game of AL onlys or maybe even in mixed? I think you have to be, if you, assuming you're playing a format where stolen bases are important to you. Certainly in the points-based league world, Tapia is probably a pretty easy avoid. But in, in you know, if you're interested in stolen bases, if you're in an AL only, yeah, this is a pretty good landing spot you never like to see your hitters leave cores but the, you know, the jays have shown an aggressiveness on the bases over the last few years you know certainly you know the shed has not had any trouble uh you know racking up his stolen bases and there's a whole bunch of guys on this team even you know guys like tioscar who pick up you know eight to ten a year and as long as tapia keeps the success rate up i would imagine there are going to be uh you know fairly regular green lights there for him in your neck of the woods, we go from uh, southern Ontario to uh, northeast Massachusetts, is it? 
It is. Okay. I, I was not sure where north-south that Boston sits. I've been there, but uh, I didn't <laughs> walk, so I didn't <laughs> get a real handle on the geography. We'll just call it east. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyways, it's in Boston, and the Red Sox manager Alex Cora has announced that right-hander Tanner Houck is going to start the season in the rotation. Chris Olson covered this for playing time today. What's the fantasy effect for Houck and the other pitchers in Boston? Yeah, I don't think this is a terrible surprise. I think during the walkout, with uh, you know, when there were more moving parts, you know, there was a bit of a cloud on Houck's initial opportunity. Uh, but a couple of things have changed. It seems like Garrett Whitlock is more ticketed for the bullpen. And, of course, Chris Sale is hurting out for a while. So a couple of dominoes fell, and that got how comfortably into the top five. So this was – by the time Cora pronounced this after some of those other dominoes had fallen, this was sort of a foregone conclusion. Uh, so Ivaldi, Pavetta, Hauk, uh, and Michael Walker are probably set, and now we're looking at – Rich Hill and maybe Whitlock for that, uh, still that fifth spot, and you know, which is basically the placeholder until Sale comes back. In terms of Hauk's outlook in particular, there's probably still, you know, an innings limit in play here. So if he starts the season in the rotation, you know, I think there's some optimism that he's going to do well. But you know, we also have to keep in mind that it's probably not a 33 or 34 start situation. He'll get a uh, he'll get a respite from the rotation at some point as the door revol- revolves here. And Chris Olson, in covering the story for Playing Time today, quoted uh, Mass Live's Chris Cotillo. I don't know who that is, whether he's credible or not, but the note was that Waka threw three scoreless innings recently, but is not going to get a, an endorsement from Cora based on three scoreless innings. And, you know, that's fine. <laughs> maybe it's because it's maybe it's because you know, Waka's new to the team and, you know, Cora's got a better handle on what how can do, having seen him in the past. But uh, I, I wouldn't be too worried about Waka's rotation spot. I, you know, because of the numbers I kind of ran through earlier, I don't. I don't think they have a lot of alternatives, at least not quality alternatives to start the year. So uh, I, I really do, maybe it's a little biased for me that I think they really do need Whitlock in the bullpen. Maybe maybe the organization is just that determined to give Whitlock a look as a starter. And don't forget also now with the um, the news that we're going to have 28-man rosters for the month of April, that creates opportunities to do creative things like piggyback starters. And you might see the fifth fifth spot in, in Boston be three innings from Waka and then three more from Whitlock or something like that and let the, let the quote-unquote competition sort of drift through the month of April until they have to make some harder decisions. Staying in Boston, of course, the big story there, Trevor's story. They signed him to a multi-year deal. Chris Olson again covering the Red Sox for playing time today. Where does story fit into the Boston narrative? So he goes right to second base, uh, which makes him easily our best second baseman since Dustin Pedroia. Uh, Logic or the outside observer would sort of expect him to be the shortstop, given that's where he's played his whole career. And in terms of defensive metrics, he's clearly bet a better defensive shortstop than Xander Bogarts, but as usual, uh, there are local political implications in play, specifically that Bogarts very much wants to remain a shortstop, and he's got an opt-out in his long-term contract after this season, so I think the Sox are willing to take a bit of a defensive hit in terms of uh, re- maintaining a relationship with Bogarts and maybe keep him more likely to uh, t- to stick around long-term after this year if they uh, 
if they make that little defensive sacrifice. So for now, it's Bogarts at short. It's Story at second. Uh, the the big loser in terms of playing time here is probably Christian Arroyo, who figured to have a decent chunk of the second base playing time with Enrique Hernandez. But Hernandez goes to the outfield now, and he's probably your center fielder. And Arroyo becomes the the, the fifth infielder, and it'll pr- presumably be Story moving around uh, to shortstop or uh, you know even third base when uh, when Bogarts or Devers need a day off and Arroyo will plug in at second base. I thought when I first heard the news about Bogarts wanting to stay at shortstop, of course it reminded me when uh, the Yankees had a much better defensive shortstop come into their uh, team and Derek Jeter basically stood his ground and dug in his heels and says, I'm not moving, I'm not moving. And A-Rod went to third base, even though he was clearly better, as we mentioned. But I don't know if this is necessarily a net defensive loss because one way or another, Story's glove is in the infield. And if they put him at short and moved Bogarts to second, who's to say that Bogarts is is necessarily as good at second as he was at short? So maybe they're doing the best thing in a kind of a roundabout fashion. I think that's probably right. And Bogarts' issue at shortstop isn't you know the arm strength, which you could sort of cover up by moving him to second base. It's a range issue, and you know he would still have range problems at second base, right? Um, you know, uh, on the flip side of that coin. You know, if there are questions about Story at shortstop for the longer term, you know he's had some elbow issues. There was uh, there was a time a couple of years ago in September, I think it was in 2019, when I know I was in some uh, fantasy pennant races down the stretch, and in the last week of the season, Story had an elbow injury, and there was some concern that he had blown out uh, his ligament there. But uh, you know, he magically recovered about 24 hours later. But um, it may actually be that Story is. Uh, you, you know, if, if he's got any lingering concerns with those elbow, with, with that elbow, second base is a, a place where you can protect that a little bit more. I watched the press conference where they introduced Story this week, and if anybody's thinking about the perils of him, you know, sort of sort of learning a new position in the last uh, two weeks of spring training, he was pretty clear up front that while he hasn't played second base in a long time, he did do a lot of it in the minors, and as he put it, there are probably some finer points he's got to polish up on, but. You know, it's not like he's never wandered to that side of second base before. As, and he even made the point that you know they do it a lot. You know, he had done it a lot in recent years as the uh, shift had increased the prevalence, and he had gone to the other side of second base. So he's he is not completely lost over there. It should be a pretty easy transition. I always hear that when the shortstops move to second or vice versa, the biggest thing they have to figure out is turning the double play because the ball is coming at them from a different angle on the throw. They have to make a different angle on the throw if the ball is hit to them, and that's uh, something that they have to recover. But having said that, these guys are very highly skilled professional baseball players, and it's not, I don't think it's as big a deal as sometimes people make it out to be, moving from shortstop to second. I mean, it, it seems like something that any decent middle infielder should be able to handle, you know, pretty effectively, if not 100% effectively. I think that's right. And, you know, back to my original point, I think there's probably an allowance that you know, maybe two weeks of spring training and a lot of partial games, et cetera, is not an, is not going to be enough to completely finish off that process. And don't forget, in addition to switching positions, the middle infielders will always tell you that there's a tiny bit of a learning curve when you start working with a new second base shortstop partner just to sort of figure out, like you said on the double play, is where they like to double play feed throw. You know, do they like it? They like to be let off the back to one side or the other. You know, that kind of stuff. So 
you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of a, you know, not a clown show element, but if you, if you see the, the work in progress for a couple of weeks into the season, but I would imagine that it'll, it'll stabilize pretty quickly. I should think so. And if it's any consolation or any reassurance to uh, Boston fans about the shortstop moving to second base, wasn't Dustin Pedroia a shortstop in university? And he seemed to do all right. He was, uh, yeah, he, you know, he, he swung over there and, you know, I think he did most of that in the minors and was polished by the time he came up, but yeah, he picked that up just fine. There was even a, I, I don't remember who the second baseman was, but you know, somewhat late in Pedroia's career, there was a free agent second baseman that the Red Sox were dancing around signing and Pedroia was like, was like, I'll go back to shortstop. That's fine. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I think it was mostly a, uh, you know, a, a marketing slash recruiting pitch, but um, you know, I, all reinforces your point. I think that, uh, you know, sliding to one side of second base or the other, you know, with as long as you get a little bit of time and notice to prepare is not that big a deal. Chris Olson's coverage made Jackie Bradley a minor beneficiary of this whole deal, which seems odd given the positional differences, but maybe that's why he's a possible minor beneficiary. How does that work? Yeah, I think Chris is probably right about that. There, I actually tweeted it at Chris after he he said this, and we were you know we often go back and forth on the Red Sox playing time a little bit. So if you look at the outfield repercussions of this, I mentioned Kiki Hernandez earlier. He goes to center field. Alex Verdugo is going to be in left, and that probably leaves right for Jackie Bradley or and or Jaron Duran if he makes the team. Or a and, and you know those two lefties probably need a platoon partner. There are a couple of journeymen in camp who are you know taking, who are sort of competing for that role. Rob Ruff Snyder is one of them. Uh, you know, Franchi Cordero's kicking around. He doesn't help in the platoon sense at all since he's another lefty. But you know they have a couple of options there. Uh, but Bradley probably gets the lead role, and you know he's a you know, traditionally been a center fielder, but right field in Fenway might as well be a second center field. So it makes sense to put a glove out there. I, I think the open question and probably the threat to Bradley's playing time from the existing roster is how much time they want to give J.D. Martinez in the outfield. And they've gone down that road before. Martinez is pretty vocal that he thinks he benefits from playing the outfield periodically and that he enjoys it. But, you know, Martinez is getting older. He's had a bunch of, uh, you know, t- tweaks and muscle problems and back problems over the years. And it probably makes the most sense to keep him as primarily the DH. But against left-handed pitching, primarily at home where the Fenway left field is, you know, fa- fairly, uh, you know, there's not a lot of running that goes on out there, shall we say. Um, it might be that Martinez moves out the left field a little bit and Verdugo moves over to right and Bradley, uh, Bradley takes a seat. But we've got Bradley at, a little over 50% playing time right now, which is, you know, as we said earlier uh, for a left-handed batter, you know, 65 to 70 is probably full-time against right-handed pitching. So we've got Bradley just, just a tick below that. He's going to, he's going to be out there most of the time against right-handed pitching. So I have two questions. The first one is even if Jackie Bradley gets 50 to 75% playing time, how likely is he to be a fantasy contributor? Because I had him on a roster a couple of years ago when he was still with Boston and it wasn't that great and it didn't get a lot better in Milwaukee. Yeah. It's last year was really rough in Milwaukee. Uh, He is only 32, so he shouldn't be washed up yet. And I think my observation on him from a, you know, having played his full career in Boston until last year is that he's just super streaky. 
and his tw- his short 2020 was pretty good. He hit 283 with seven homers and five stolen bases and just under 200 at bats. Uh, the couple of years before that, the power was there, but he was you know he had been a sub 250 hitter for three years running. And you know my my sort of you know thumbnail analysis of him is like I said he's super streaky and in a couple of those bad years he had the the hot streak never came in 2018 you know he, he wasn't he had, he had a really rough year but then you'll remember uh, he was absolutely bonkers in October in the playoff run you know he, he basically single-handedly won the ALCS against the Astros and he can get hot for a month at a time so and he can also look lost for a month at a time so he's given where he's going to go in drafts and that he'll either be a very late slash reserve pick or be somebody who's available in the free agent pool, you know, I'll probably be watching him fairly closely. And if he shows signs of getting off to a decent start I, and knowing how hot he can get, I'll, I'll be, I'll be willing to jump in. I probably won't do it at the draft table, but I'll be, I'll, I'll be open to gr- grabbing him in season. If he shows signs that either there's been a swing correction or he's just having one of his random hot streaks. Question number two, going back to Trevor's story, how likely is he to contribute stolen bases playing for the Red Sox? I think reasonably likely. That also came up in uh, the press conference I watched, and you know, Heim Bloom, who should you know, you know, is one of these new generation GMs who you would think is part of the um, group that's sort of responsible for devaluing the stolen base. You know, when they asked him you know, why he targeted Story. I think the you know second thing out of his mouth was that he's a fantastic base runner. Um, so you know they're certainly aware of that, and you know at least paid lip service to it. And Cora's you know what kind of like what I said with Toronto earlier with Tapia. Cora's a fairly aggressive manager, you know at least in terms of this day and age. I'm not saying he's Whitey Herzog with the '85 Cardinals or, or anything, but you know he'll let the guys run. You know obviously he's looking for a level of efficiency there, but he likes to play you know with the right combinations and aggressive style of ball. Um, I, I think one of the things we're waiting to see on story and Cora was fairly noncommittal on it was where he's going to bat in the lineup. And what, you know, if he's up at two or three or down at six probably makes a difference. Um, paradoxically, you know, being down in the order, being in the sixth spot might actually be better for the stolen bases because maybe they'll do, maybe, maybe they're more likely to put plays on or try to, you know, quote unquote, manufacture a run with, the likes of uh, Christian Vasquez and Bradley, uh, you know, at the plate and Story at first base than they are if it's uh, Story on first and Devers and Bogarts up. Yeah, it's an interesting question. The trade-off, of course, is I think the rule of thumb is every spot down in the rota- in the batting order that you go it costs you twenty plate appearances. So if he bats six as opposed yep. to first, that's a hundred plate appearances in a year, and that ain't nothing. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you could probably just because of the you know this Red Sox lineup should be quite good but even just from the perspective of not playing in cores and the run factory that is there's probably a loss of uh over of overall netted bats going from course to boston just because you're not uh you're probably on a team that's scoring fewer runs and turning the lineup over less frequently uh it's an interesting thing it's going to be very interesting to watch as spring tra- training 
uh, comes to an end and, the, and they have to start making decisions, uh, one of the things I s- surely will be watching is where Trevor Story ends up in the batting order. Uh, speaking of drafts, uh, I invested $18 in tout American League only to get Shane Baz's stats on my roster, and it looks like uh, my season is starting off badly on that score. Chris Olson of BaseballHQ.com reporting in playing time today that Baz is going to miss at least six weeks on the IL to start the season. Yikes. Yeah, that's a blow. Um, maybe a, I might not. I, I haven't rostered him. I don't think anywhere. So maybe I'm. But but I could sort of preliminarily say maybe you shouldn't take it that hard. Um, certainly the the Rays are going to play this cautiously. Um, you wouldn't see him back till sometime in May, based on that timeline. I saw Jason Collett, who's the big uh, Rays observer, uh, you know, and friend of the fr- friend of our pod here. He put an over under on it of, of Mother's Day, which. Sounds right to me. Uh, you know, and in between, the Rays are going to cobble it together. You'll see more Ryan Yarborough and Luis Patino and Josh Fleming and J- Jalen Beeks. And I, th- I think also Yanni Chirinos are on their way back from Tommy John surgery and could fit into uh, a bulk reliever kind of mode here. So the Rays have arms to absorb this. But in terms of Boz's uh, return, I, you know, in terms of a projection, we didn't knock that many innings off of him. I think we only cost him, you know, 20 or 25 innings off of his projection. He was up in the 135, 140 range a week or so ago, as I remember. And now looking at him on the site today, he's at 116. And I think the reason for that is we sort of expected some workload monitoring and caution here to begin with. So losing the six weeks, you know, is essentially in the best case scenario, just kind of front loading whatever you know, vacation or workload monitoring that we expected him to have anyway. And maybe it's the case that, uh, you know, assuming a full and healthy return, which is, you know, still a little bit of a question mark, he's got some hurdles to clear, but if he comes back and he's ready to go, then maybe the, uh, you know, he's just sort of eaten his restrictions early and in turn, you know, and and losing six weeks is only going to cost him 20 innings where if it was, you know, Max Scherzer losing six weeks would cost him more like 40 or 50. Yeah, I wondered about that too when I was looking at the story. And uh, my concern as somebody who wants to have Shane Baz on his roster for skill reasons, but also for cost reasons and replacement ability reasons and so forth, is that they were planning on giving him a break every once in a while, which was going to cut his innings down anyway. But I wonder if the if the model is to give him a, a break on a pattern or in a routine, then it's even worse because they are going to continue. He's going to lose innings by being not on the roster, and then he'll lose more innings because they may still want to give him cyclical rest rather than aggregate rest. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a concern. And you know, my related concern, sort of looking at the same thing differently, is we know how the Rays manage these games, and he, he may have trouble racking up even our projected innings total because the starts may all be four or five innings at a clip. You know, they're never, they're virtually never going to let a pitch into the seventh, maybe not even the sixth inning, right? Because they're going to turn it over to the, uh, you know, the, the, the 12 handed bullpen that they have out there. Yeah, they can do that. Uh, I think they'll let him go if he's at a fairly low pitch count, maybe into the sixth. There may be a times through the order consideration that they're looking at. It remains to be seen, but just generally, I think we can all agree it's bad news. If you have Shane Baz on any of your rosters, there's nothing good about it. Uh, Let's move to Minnesota, Ray. They surprised a lot of us by splashing some pretty big dough onto Carlos Correa. Uh, Rick Green covered the story for playing time today. What do you think? 
Yeah, this, I actually may have been the only person that wasn't terribly surprised by this. Uh, you know, not, not to toot my own horn, but I had written a Plenty of Time Tomorrow blurb for the Twins, I think the day before the signing. It was last Friday, right before the weekend. And I said, well, you know, in the first couple of spring training games, they were playing Arias at third base and Polanco at second. And why would you do that if you thought that Polanco was the opening day shortstop? And the only conclusion I could draw was that the opening day shortstop wasn't on the roster. And sure enough, 24 hours later, Carlos Correa arrived. So I hope I hope that's not the one prediction I get right all year because you know it wasn't really that valuable. <laughs> how does he fit in in Minnesota? What do you how do you like his chances of being as productive at least as he was in Houston, given the ballpark differences? Yeah, it's interesting. The the Twins ballpark plays you know kind of weird. It's uh, and, and you know I think we by weird I guess I mean a little bit non intuitive, and that goes for Houston as well. Uh, you know Houston, you know coming looking at where Correa is coming from, you know has the Crawford boxes, etc. But the uh, you know it it actually plays as more of a pitcher's park overall than you think. There's that short fence over in right field where you know I have memories of a Rod thinking a. Uh, playoff home run into the first row there that looked like it was a pop-up um you know it's kind of my go-to example for that ballpark but you know overall it plays you know pretty neutral to favor to favoring the pitchers a little bit uh and in terms of um minnesota you know it's probably by the metrics for right-handed hitters it's a little more pitcher friendly and you know probably a decent amount of that has to do with the weather as much as anything being outdoors and it being cold especially early in the season uh but you know i i think some more granular analysis has shown that balls do go out there down the line but not as much to the gaps so i i haven't seen one of those uh spray charts on korea that you know take where his home runs went and overlay them with the new park but um i i think the long way around here is that the overall um, impact on Correa is pretty muted. He's going to get, he's going to get his numbers, and he's going to be in the middle of the lineup. And this is a very good lineup, you know, especially when Buxton is healthy and at the top of the order. So I would, I would think plenty of uh, run production opportunities here. Staying with the Twins, I don't know that the Twins right-hander Randy Dobnak is on many fantasy rosters, but he's now on the 60-day injured list because of a strained finger. Rick Green again for playing time today. Where will Dobnak's fantasy managers go for a replacement? Um, anywhere they want, I think, for a probable <laughs> upgrade. <laughs> this is not as bad news as Boz is, I don't think. Um, it, it's bad news for the Twins. I don't mean to minimize, but it, it, if you took uh, Dobnak in, you know, I would say the only appropriate place to have taken him would have been round 39 of a 50-round uh, draft and hold, and you, it's it's next man up. Um, the, but in terms of the overall Twins rotation outlook here i mean sure it's a loss of depth and i think that matters because dobnak is relatively speaking an established veteran in this rotation which is you know damning with fade praise for sure uh there, there's newly acquired sunny gray and there's you know journeyman slash every bit as flammable as dobnak uh, dylan bundy and after that it's all their kids it's bailey ober and joe ryan and lewis thorpe and griffin jackson you know i could go on uh, so, but, but the point is, you know, three or four of those guys are going to need to be in the rotation at all times and they're going to need, they're going to need some more protection for them. And I think that was the role that Dobnak was going to play. And now it might be that they have to go out to the market. I wouldn't be surprised to see them pick up one of the free agents who are still kicking around. I mean, I, they had Michael Pineda last year and I saw he signed to Detroit this week and Drew Smiley's 
signed with the Cubs. So the pickings are getting pretty thin, but I, I think Julio Turan is still floating around somewhere, you know, somewhere like that, someone like that here as, you know, insurance who they can, you know, let stretch out for a few weeks in AAA and call them up if they need them probably makes sense because Obnack did play a role here as much as we want to mock his, uh, his fantasy. Speaking of Michael Pineda going to Detroit, what did you think of that move for Pineda's fantasy value? It's a pretty good spot for him. You know, the, the the profile of the Tigers rotation is pretty similar to what I was talking about with the Twins, right? They have all the kids here. They brought in Rodriguez, Eduardo Rodriguez to front the rotation, but my Scooble, Matt Manning, Tyler Alexander, you know, Spencer Turnbull's coming back from injury maybe later in the year. That's a pretty thin and young rotation, and they need they needed somebody dependable in the middle of it. Now, that's clearly what they're going to ask Pineda to do. Um, I, th- that might be the first time that we put Michael Pineda and dependable in the same sentence. But, um, you know, that's what they're going to ask him for. At least taking, taking the ball every fifth day and the results, you know, will be what the results will be. As I recall Pineda's record, uh, home runs were a big part of the issue. And it seems like moving to whatever they call the park there now, uh, Comerica Park, I think, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Some bank park or some power company park or perhaps right. some cryptocurrency park. I don't I don't know. That's starting to make inroads as well. But it's if I'm not mistaken, uh, Detroit plays much more as a pitcher's park than some of the other options that Pineda might have had, and that might help control his ERA, if nothing else. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, as much as I you know, joke about – Pineda's lack of dependability, it's, you know, we sh- we always want to refresh our assumptions, right? And, you know, for so much of his career, Pineda was a skills are better than the results guy. And you always looked at his expected ERA at his walk and strikeout rates and said, there should be more here. And you're right that you mentioned earlier that the home runs were the biggest reason why that, um, that was never the case until coincidentally, you know, 2020 and 2021, where he actually outpitched his expected ERA. His actual ERA was better than expected for the first couple of times in his career. And both of those years were sub four. He's been basically a three, five ERA guy for the last two years. I believe both of those were with the twins, right? So, uh, you know, it's not a huge sample size. It's a total of 135 innings or whatever, not even one full season. But in that sense, Staying in the AL Central and going to Detroit is probably a good thing because Central's a pretty good place to pitch. You get some abatement from home runs in Detroit, in Minnesota, in Kansas City for sure. And you know some of these lineups are not what we're going to see in the East or even the West this year. So uh, in terms of landing spots for Pineda, this is a fairly good one. If you threw a round guard at him in, in January, I think you're pretty happy to see him win. And finally, Ray, our research lead at BaseballHQ.com, Ed DiCaria, has a magnum opus on the way. I think it's uh, actually out today, Friday, and he's looking at ADPs. Give us a, an overview of what they can expect to read in Ed DiCaria's latest research effort. A, a magnum opus is a great way to put it. This uh, It is live on the site uh on Friday morning here, Ed just submitted it overnight and we got it right up on the site because it's so important for anybody drafting this weekend. This is the 2022 follow-up to a piece he did last year that really broke down ADPs into a much more granular format than anybody has done before. Uh, this is the piece that actually won him the 
Fantasy Sports Writers Association Research Article of the Year Award that was announced last month for uh, 2021 work. And this is this is the 2022, 2022 excuse me, uh, follow-up where Ed's been collecting ADP data from the NFBC literally day by day, uh, every day this offseason, and has rolled it up into a monster spreadsheet with a whole bunch of metrics that are designed to tell you when's the right time to jump a player in the ADPs, how far do you have to jump them to get them? When's the right time to you know, let a guy fall? When does a guy fall too far that you, know, you sort of can't pass it up? You know, all of those, you know, putting data around all sort all of those sorts of straight draft metrics that we have, um, that we've sort of tried, tried to intuitively figure out, um, you know, Ed's a master of taking those, you know, things that we used to do by gut feel and putting numbers behind them. Uh, I read this piece before we started recording today. I need to go read it about three times more and spend a couple of hours with the spreadsheet. It, it, it's got that much meat on the bone, but it's uh, it's an absolute tour de force by Ed. And anybody who's in a straight draft anytime the rest of this month should, uh, should definitely take a close look at it. Ed DiCaria does great work, that's for sure, and it does sound like a, a really interesting study. I remember last year's, and I thought, wow, this is really important and helpful work. You know, a lot of times I've done research for Baseball HQ, you've done research for Baseball HQ, and sometimes, I don't know, I'm not going to say this about you, I'll say it about myself, we kind of get into our own little rabbit hole and we start, you know, burrowing into the numbers and, and figuring it out and kind of lose track that the point is to help fantasy players win their leagues. And then you have to go back and kind of recast some stuff in my instance because uh, I have I came up with what I thought was interesting information and it was completely inapplicable, <laughs> except as an abstraction. Yeah. You know, so Ed DiCaria certainly deserves kudos for not only doing the work and and organizing it and presenting it, but also making it applicable to people who are actually going to do drafting. 100%. And you're right. There's a lot of different ways that research projects can go. Like you said, you can end up down the rabbit hole with something that in the end is only interesting to you because you're that close to it. Um, or you can find, you, you can confirm something that we all already knew, but here's, you know, here's the sort of proof of the obvious, which you know, certainly has a place, but you know, Ed's you know putting something out on a completely different plane here, which is here's the data that you absolutely need in front of you at the draft table. Not even you know, not it's not even a background piece of information that goes into how you build your ranking lists or how you build your draft strategy. Like you want this spreadsheet and this data at your fingertips while you're making draft day decisions, which is you know kind of the highest level of. Uh, your research output, right? You can't you, you can't deliver something more impactful than that. There's a saying that says imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but in the baseball writing business, the media business in general, I think the ex this expression should be reader use is the greatest form of flattery, and and Ed DiCaria has that in spades. Yes, absolutely. It's a much more concise way of saying what I just tried to say. Thanks, Ray, very much for helping us out, and uh, we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Should be more news. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. He's coming to the plate for his second at-bat, or perhaps I should say going to the mound for his second inning next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I just want to remind you quickly that we'll have our next edition of Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday. It'll be a Tuesday Tout edition with another expert guest interview. That's four short days from now. More podcast goodness from Baseball HQ Radio. <laughs> 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome back. Well, thanks. I hope it goes as well as part one. Agreed. One of the things you do over the course of a preseason is somewhere or another, we get a glimpse into every bullpen in Major League Baseball. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good, solid closers, weak closers, all these kinds of things. So I'm going to quickly whip through all 30 teams, and I'll ask you to say whether the saves distribution in your mind is solidly set with a main closer, there's a closer who has question marks, there's going to be a committee, or who the hell knows. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I know there's some in all those categories, I, I think. I'm not so sure about a, a for-sure committee, but I'm very curious to see what you say about that. And we talked about Arizona, but uh, briefly give us your take on how that's going to play out in 2022. Well, you know, Mark Melanson led the league in saves last year, so I, I you know, I, he's definitely going to start the season as their guy, and they definitely want him to hold the job all year and do, do just what he did last year. Um, but we talked a little bit about how he's a little bit skills challenged and you never really know how that's going to play out. So I think there's some risk, but I do think that it's not a risk from other relievers per se in in that bullpen. It's more him against himself and whether he can succeed in that role. Assuming he, well, let's pretend that we know that he's not going to, who do you think's next in the line? Well, whoever's hot at the time. I mean, you know, the the one on the sheet that you would think could be the guy would be who we just talked about too. Ian Kennedy could. Well, I'm sure he'll be in setup. But if Ian Kennedy's giving up home runs in bunches, which I think is quite possible, it won't be him. It'll be somebody else. And you know, your guess is as good as mine as to who that would be. Oftentimes, when your when your closer's not going well, everybody else isn't going well either. And you just have to figure out like who's the skill set that the guy trusts the most. I'll tell you the stat for that too, by the way. It's not necessarily ERA or XERA or, you know, strikeouts. It's not really those things as much as um, clean um, outings, you know, clean appearances. So if you put a guy in a game five times and he goes uh, five of five, that, then the manager has confidence in that guy. If he goes four of five and it's just a horrific blow up, all of his skill stats may look terrible. But he still might be the guy the manager trusts most because he did such a good job in the other four. Just just something to think about. Yeah, you know, years ago at BaseballHQ.com, I was looking at PQS for starters, pure quality starts, I think they call it. And I thought, why don't we do the same thing for relievers? And I went through a bunch of iterations and came up with a basically a five-point scale the, the same way. And if you follow the outings on an outing-by-outing outing basis and ignore the metrics, I think you're actually on to a better solution for trying to identify which guy might be next in line or you know which guy has potential to move from low leverage to higher leverage opportunities, which is an opportunity for vulture wins and those kinds of things. So an outing-by-outing outing basis, I think, is a pretty good way of looking at it. Uh, well, speaking of outing-by-outing, uh, outing, Atlanta went out and got Kenley Jansen to top what is already a very, very solid bullpen that seemed to be led by Will Smith. How's the situation in Atlanta? I'm presuming that Jansen takes over as the full-time closer, but what, what do you say? No, I think that's right, and, it, and it would, Jansen would have to mess up to lose that role. I think that the goal is for him to just be the closer. They, I mean, what a weapon Will Smith will be to be used when, you know, flexibly whenever they want. I mean, it really opens up a lot of different possibilities in different scenarios throughout the rest of the game to have Jansen just locking down the, the back of that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great bullpen, and it's a great uh, signing. 
in Baltimore, much less solid, I'm going to guess, much less stable. What's the situation in Camden Yards? Yeah, so the guy that I would have thought was going to be their closer is uh, Wells, you know, but it looks like they're going to try him as a starter, which I find really kind of intriguing. And, if, you know, if he can do that, then, then you know, he won't be available in the bullpen. Um, I think Cole Salser is going to start the season as their closer. Um, I don't really like him or his skill. I mean, it's not him personally. It's his skill set um, particularly. But, um, you know, they don't have a lot of options. And if you followed them, you know, the last couple of years, it's just been a revolving door of different guys getting hot or not and having to change it out. And I don't see why this year would be any different given the array of options they have. Also, something to keep in mind when you're looking at the bullpen situations in places like Baltimore and Arizona is it's pretty well established that the teams that get the most wins get the most saves and that you get about half of the wins generate saves. It varies, of course, from season to season, but that's not a bad marker. And gosh, Baltimore doesn't look like a very strong team again this year, so it might not be the place to go fishing, even if you're pretty sure that you know who the closer is going to be, and much less so when we don't. Uh, what's the Red Sox bullpen situation look like to you? Well, I I actually think Matt Barnes is going to start the year as the closer. I don't see why he wouldn't. I mean, you know, he started last year so hot, and then he had that little blip in the middle where he lost the role entirely. But, you know, I think he's probably going to do that. I don't know how it's going to work out with Garrett Whitlock. Um, I know he's been preparing as a starter, but I think he's going to be a multi-inning guy. Um, but if Barnes has problems, then, you know, they're going to relook at everything. But those are the two guys, obviously, that I think are, are their best two. Um, they could always sign, you know, another guy, but those are the two that I think um, are most likely to get saved. They've been rumored in the in the hot stove league as a possible target for Craig Kimbrell if the White Sox decide to move him along for some help elsewhere. Uh, Barnes's um, decline last year, his second half decline, or a little bit before that, seemed to have been tied to the sticky stuff ban, which affected quite a few pitchers, and it seemed like he was among them. But do you have any uh, intel on whether that's actually the case, or is just something we infer from the coincidence of the timing? Yeah, I just don't really know. I, it's hard to really say. I mean, I do think that it certainly affected a lot of pitchers to make a sea change like that just abruptly. Um, but I also think that pitchers, you know, adjust and adapt and, you know, having from then till now, it isn't like Matt Barnes has always been, you know, covered with sticky stuff his whole career. And he's had a long career really at this point of excellent skill. So to me, I'm not that worried about it. I mean, what I'm more worried about is, is, is the fact that he's not consistent across a whole season. He has these brief moments where he, he really goes into the tank, but the rest of the time, you know, it's elite stuff all the time. So um, he probably will have another blip this year. I think that's probably likely for him. Um, but I would I would not think that he's going to have trouble um, from a skill set standpoint because he really never has. In Chicago, of course, they look really set with Liam Hendricks barring injury. So what's the situation behind him? Uh, maybe briefly discuss if Kimbrell gets traded out or not. Well, I don't think they're going to trade Kimbrell unless they have a need. And I really don't know what the need that they have. You know, what is it they're going to get? Because they're trying to win now. And um, I, I typically see bullpens like this where they've just stacked four or five guys that just can go out there and blow you away and say, this is a team that is primed to try and make it, you know, to the World Series. And just, you know, okay, we our starter only went two innings. No problem. We got all these guys that can come in and, and blow you away. So, 
I, you know, what are they going to get for Kimbrel that's better than Kimbrel for them winning this year? That's the question. If a team can solve that, then um, then they, they might get them. On the north side of Chicago, the Cubs looked like they were going in with a fairly stable situation, and then their presumed closer going into the year, a bad injury situation there. So what's going on with uh, the Chicago Cubs? Yeah, well, Hoyer, so it's funny. I mean, he does have, like, a great strikeout, um, but but he the rest of his skills were not that good. So it might be a little – I won't say it's a blessing. It's not. I mean, obviously you want all your guys, but losing him um, added a little bit of clarity, I think. Um, I don't like Rowan Wick. I always laughed because uh, last year in the fall league when we were down there, they had, um, you know, we were right next to the Cubs stadium. They had these big billboards up of their star players. And it's like, well, who's a star player on the Cubs last fall? Well, Rowan Wick was on a billboard. I was like, well, that must make him the closer. I mean, I don't know why you put Rowan Wick on a billboard. Um, They just signed, though, David Robertson. If David Robertson pitches to what his um, projections are, and what he used to do, he'll be their closer. I mean, he's he's far and away better than Wick and better than anybody else that they have um, in that bullpen. So that's something to watch. I really would like to see it, you know. But um, but wow, what 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 a that that could be one of those come out of nowhere things like when uh, Trevor Rosenthal was in uh, Kansas City and left for dead, and then suddenly became you know a great closer for them. So that's something to watch. In Cincinnati, Lucas Sims looked like the guy. Lucas Sims is going to start the season on the IL. What's the situation other than Dyer for our, our mutually favorite team, the Cincinnati Reds? Yeah, I just think it's going to be fluid all season. It was fluid all season last year. I think one of their save leaders last year, Heath Hembry, was uh, converting saves and then had two bad outings and was cut. I mean, it's a kind of uh, weird schizophrenic um, view that the closer is really not all that important anyway compared to other things, and they're just trying to get it get through the games. So um, Art Warren's a guy that I really like his skill set a lot. I think he could close if they wanted him to. I don't think they have enough guys that they can count on um, just using a guy like that in the ninth inning. So I expect them to spread their saves around, and nobody's going to be happy with any of the Reds relievers if they sign them. You know, if they do that, the Reds will be doing what people like us have been advising for years, which is if you've got one really good pitcher, put him in when he is in the high, absolutely the highest leverage situation you can think of. And often it is in the ninth inning, but often it's not. And it'll be curious to see if the Reds try to do that just as a way of trying to figure out what they're going to do on the rare occasion when they're leading a game. Uh, in Cleveland, it looks like Emmanuel Class A, of course, but what's the rest of that bullpen shape up like? Yeah, well, I really think they have a deep bullpen, probably underrated. I mean, that guy throws, I mean, what a great closer that guy is. He throws absolute 100-mile-an-hour bowling balls, and everybody hits it on the ground and weekly all the time. I mean, what a what a skill set that guy has. Um, Karinchak, though, he's not dead. I mean, that guy, you know, was a, was a big-time target this time last year because of his strikeout rate, and everybody thought he was going to be the closer. And, you know, again, people said, oh, it's the sticky stuff. Well, we'll see because that guy has a great strikeout rate and that's a good starting place for having a good season. So I do think he's probably pretty good. They have another guy named Nick uh, Sandlin. I don't even know if people have even heard of him. He has a great strikeout rate, great strikeouts to walks. That's another guy to watch. Um, So very deep bullpen, like it a lot. Karinchak had a little bit of trouble with the control, but uh, yeah, definitely. I can remember not that long ago where he was a target in a lot of drafts on the expectation that because of the strikeouts, he was going to be a dominant closer. And it didn't 
really work out that way. We talked about Colorado, so briefly spin us through the Rockies situation. Again, not a lot of wins. Yeah, I just think it's going to be fluid all season. They have four guys who are all pretty similar skill sets. Um, whoever's the hot, you know, they have a manager who wants to have one guy, you know, in each role. And so I just think he's going to have to shuffle the deck chairs every once in a while. They don't have anybody who's skilled enough to hold it all year. Shuffle the deck chairs usually ends up with on the Titanic. So <laughs> maybe, might might actually be very apt. Uh, in Detroit, the... Early betting was Gregory Soto, but what do you think? No, I think Soto's the better pitcher. Soto's left-handed, which also kind of adds to the interest. Um, I think that uh, Michael Fulmer is a very um, kind of reliable, not good, not, I mean good, but not great skill set. So if they if Soto has um, some blips, you know, Fulmer will will definitely get some save chances. I would bet you that um, I would bet you that it ends up with each of them getting save chances with Soto maybe having you know, a few more than, than Fulmer. One of the most rock-solid closers going into the years, Ryan Presley in Houston. Uh, other than injury, I presume you've got him down for the bulk of the saves there. Oh, yeah. He's going to be the main guy. And they have a deep bullpen. I mean, they just picked up uh, Hector Neris, who which is a skill set that I've always really liked. He's a little bit like uh, Barnes in that he has these little blips in the middle of the year. But other than that, just locks it down. Um, and then they have more guys behind that. So, I mean, that's a that's a deep 10, and, but Presley is the guy. Kansas City? Yeah, well, we talked a little bit about Mike Matheny. I mean, I don't think skill set is something that he worries about very much. He just uh, throws out there who – I mean, it, it really does feel haphazard the way he uses his bullpen. But I will say that he eventually got around to Scott Barlow as his closer, and Scott Barlow is the one guy with the skill set in that bullpen who can do it. There is a sleeper guy, well, sleeper. There's a guy that they have who does have an excellent skill set, Dylan uh, Coleman. I'll be very interested to see how they use him early in the year. But, you know, it'll be more Mike Matheny if he doesn't even make the team, which isn't impossible. I remember back a few years ago when uh, Mike Matheny was being derided as such a poor manager, and didn't he come out or somebody come out and say that Mike Matheny's going to embrace analytics and he's going to go entirely the other way and and it didn't ever seem to work out that way. It may not have been Mike Matheny. I'm getting old, so my memory's a little shaky. No, Mike Matheny is, is probably the last manager to embrace analytics. Trust me. He, he, he's a gut and instinct guy. In Los Angeles, uh, another very solid closer in Razel Iglesias, but what goes on behind that? Well, I think they're trying. I mean, they went out and signed a couple of guys, I think, to pair up, um, you know, very good skill sets. But Iglesias is an elite skill set. There's no reason for him not to keep the job all year other than um, health. Um, there's no reason to think he's unhealthy. So I, I see him having an excellent year and being one of the top closers. Doug, I've talked to a bunch of different experts during the Baseball HQ Radio podcast season so far, and I kind of have asked almost all of them about the Dodgers' bullpen situation, and some of them believe Blake Trinan's just going to be the closer full stop, and others believe that the situation is going to be different. Now we have the bullpen expert. It's not a coin toss for you, I, I hope. Uh, who do you think gets the job in L.A., and how are they going to manage their bullpen? Well, they, so they have a lot of great skill sets to pick from. And, but Blake Trinan, I think, is going to start the year as their closer. Um, and I think, that, I think that they like to have one guy. So if that's the case, then Blake Trinan's that guy. And, and, and you know, and that's how they use Jansen. I don't see why they would, would, would you know, back off from that. 
They have the luxury, though, of having a bunch of guys with really good strikeouts, strikeouts to walks. Uh, Phil Bickford, Tommy Conley, um, Alex Vessia, who's a lefty. Then they have a bunch of other guys that are um, behind them that are that are that are solid. I mean, so um, with all that depth, it sometimes feels a little bit murky. But their history has been we're using one guy always to be our closer. If that's the case, that's got to be trying. And so I think it's probably likely that Trinan will be the closer. Will start the season that way as long as he doesn't have you know a blip like he did a couple of years ago in Oakland, he should be fine. Um, but I'd say three out of four years he's been fine, so I, I, I expect good things from him. Certain amount of uh, manager trust that emanates from the fact that Trinan does have some actual closing experience and and has succeeded in the role, which is probably a bit comforting to a, a manager. It may be irrational, but sometimes that that does play a role in it. And when you mentioned the extraordinary skills that the Dodgers have amassed, uh, obviously by design. It seems to me that uh, a lot of fantasy players look at a bullpen that's got lots of high-skilled guys and they think that's a threat to the guy who's the closer. And sometimes I think the opposite is true, that when you've got all these kind of guys who can come in in the earlier innings, knock everybody down, and hand the, the closer a clean ninth inning to get through, that's got to be kind of better for that closer rather than, uh, especially in situations where there is no other guy with good skills and the manager might say, ah, let's bring him in in the eighth with the bases loaded and, and uh, you know, one out or something like that and we'll give the save to Jimmy once the crisis has blown over. I think this is a better scenario for a, an established closer than if he's the only guy in the bullpen that has skill. Yeah, I mean, the only enemy Trinan will have is himself, right? Like, as long as he's converting, um, all things will be fine. What's the situation in Miami? Well, so Miami, you know, I so they have a guy named um, Dylan Floro. I, I don't really like his skill set very much. I wouldn't be surprised if he starts the year as the incumbent, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he didn't because of the skill set. They do have a, an obvious skill set in their bullpen named Anthony Bender, um, which is which is obvious, I think, to anybody who's looking at statistics. And so you see him getting bumped up as a speculative, he's going to be the closer. But, you know, there's no announcement that he's the closer. And until you get that, you're just going to have to wait and wait and hopefully not wait too long. But skills-wise, the two guys are not even in the same ballpark. In Milwaukee, of course, uh, another seemingly solidly established closer in Josh Hader. But uh, Devin Williams is still lurking around behind, and I've read some speculation that Josh Hader, especially as he comes into a big contract situation in in always cash-poor Milwaukee, that Josh Hader, as weird as it sounds for a contender, could be on the trading block as Milwaukee tries to shore up other parts of the team. What do you think is going to go on in that Brewers bullpen in the long run? Yeah, I really can't see the future well enough yet. A lot of it depends on how they come out of the gate, whether they're winning the division, you know, whether they think they need him in the playoffs, those kinds of things. It would be very weird and hard to trade an um, amazing lefty skill set like that and expect that to work out for you for this season. Um, but they do have three, they actually have three guys um, behind him that I think could close. Williams is the best of those, but also uh, Jake Cousins and Brad Boxberger have great skill sets too. Um, so that, that pen is stacked as well. I think Hayter closes there, but if, if they, come, they get to the trade deadline and it makes sense for them to trade him, um, they got other guys, you know, then you're going to see Williams, I think. But wow, what a, what a group those guys are. What a great pen. 
Minnesota, probably great pen is not the words we choose, but what's going to happen in Minnesota, do you think? Well, they have a good lefty, too, with Rodgers. I think he's going to probably um, do it, you know, like last year, have kind of a job share um, with uh, Tyler Dofty, maybe, and uh, Jorge Alcala, who's a very good skill set. Um, they don't really use um, set um, roles the way that some of these other teams do. So if they need a lefty in the seventh, it's going to be Rodgers. If they don't need him, then he might, you know, close in the ninth. And you're, so you're going to see all the saves kind of divided among these three guys probably. And, you know, that should depress their value for from saves purposes. But, you know, Rodgers, great skill set. Alcala, very good skill set. I think Duffy's not too bad too. I saw Alcala on a lot of sleeper lists over the last few weeks and to the point where, you know, if everybody's yelling this guy's a sleeper, you have to wonder, is this guy actually a sleeper? If everybody's yelling about him, I'm not so sure. Uh, In New York, the Yankees have one of the most famous closers in all of baseball, but there's been a few chinks in the armor over the last couple of years. I was watching um, MLB Network two days ago, and they were talking about Chapman, and uh, Mike Petriello made a really good point. Chapman last year started the season, first two months, absolutely historically excellent, untouchable two months. And then he had a three-week period where he just couldn't do anything right. Everything just, wheels fell off completely. Everything was going wrong. And then he righted the ship and actually had a very solid second half. And I just wonder um, what it was that was going on during those three weeks. But whatever it was, I'm kind of counting on that not happening this year. I think as long as he stays healthy, he's as solid as any of the top closers. And, you know, he still throws a million miles an hour and has that wipeout slider. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds boring almost at this point. You know, oh, Raldis Chapman. But, I mean, it's like a metronome of excellence. Why wouldn't you want it? It makes you almost have to think that this is something – anomalous that it's not an injury it's probably something outside of baseball maybe even but i think that uh, it has depressed aroldis chapman's value in auctions and on straight drafts and i don't think that's warranted so we'll see uh, in new york also the mets have edwin diaz a lot of fans don't seem to like edwin diaz i don't know why well i think they think that edwin diaz should be the best closer in baseball and that's asking a lot. I mean, I think Edwin Diaz is a fine skill set. He had a fine year last year. Um, he was not the best closer in baseball, but he was, you know, in the top six or seven. I, I just don't understand what the expectations are when you don't like Edwin Diaz. He doesn't, he's not 50 for 50 in save uh, conversions. I'm sorry, but, you know, geez, I, I don't know what you want. Mets fans, I don't know. In Oakland, uh, they didn't have a closer to trade away. Otherwise, I'm sure they would have. Uh, looks like a fairly shaky situation all the way around. What are you looking at when you look at the Oakland pen? I am looking elsewhere. I don't see anything in there that I want. Lou uh, Trevino was on a, a draft champions team of mine last year, and um, was ob- you know he led their team in saves, and I didn't. I I, I hardly used him. I mean, because his skill set is so weak. I just. I don't see anything there that I'd want. I, um, I'll tell you what people are, are you know, when, you're, when you have a bullpen like this, people grasp at things. One thing that people have been grasping at with Oakland is the idea that maybe A.J. Puck will end up in the bullpen and end up not being, you know, terrible. But that's a lot of ifs to me. I, I don't know. I don't see anything there that I want. Also, if your if pays off and he's not terrible, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement, is it? Uh, what's going on in Philadelphia? 
Well, I think Corey Knable is going to be a very good closer this year. I think he's the main guy. Um, I've gotten him on a bunch of teams because the price was right. Um, so I'm excited about him. I, I think he's the guy. Uh, Pittsburgh, probably not a lot of saves there, but uh, I, I assume Bednar's the guy, but there's a risk that he gets traded out uh, as soon as he starts showing some utility in that regard. Well, that's always the risk with Pittsburgh. At some point, Pittsburgh has to try a little bit. I mean, good Lord. But yeah, I mean, that's a big risk is that he'll have a pretty solid first half and then and then suddenly be on Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta doesn't need any more relievers, but why not? I mean, I don't know. It's funny though. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't see uh, Pittsburgh keeping him if he has a great first half, and I don't see uh, you know fantasy players keeping him if he has a terrible first half. So the dividing line would be some kind of mediocre first half with just enough saves to keep you interested, but not enough to make anybody in Major League Baseball front offices interested. Down in San Diego, uh, Melanson leaves. Who takes over? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. I've been we've been talking about this on podcasts for a month and a half now. I, I don't know. And I, and they aren't giving us any good hints either. I mean, it could be anybody. I'll tell you a guy, you want to talk about throwing a dart, um, um, Dynelson Lamette, that guy might end up being the closer. And if he does with his stuff and, you know, it might help him stay healthy, that would be something else. I mean, that would be just um, unbelievable. But again, that's very speculative. And, it, you know, so don't go out there spending money saying, oh, well, he's going to be a great closer. Who knows? I don't know who it's going to be, though. And they have probably five or six guys who could do the job um, just as well as Mark um, Melanson did last year. So, um, you know, your guess is as good as mine. I would be very careful about putting all my eggs in one basket there. I took Lametta in a reserve round in in one of my drafts, and my thinking was if he succeeds as a starter, good. If they put him in the bullpen and he succeeds there, also good. Of course, the downside is he throws three pitches and his arm falls off, and, and that's the end of that. But... For reserve round pick, what the heck? Uh, in San Francisco, they're pretty uh, good at managing their bullpen. What's the situation there? Yeah, I think it's going to be a job share between uh, Jake McGee from the left side and uh, Camilo um, Duvall from the right. I liked Duvall a lot when I saw him late last year, but the sample size is small. Um, you don't really know, you know, what you're going to get, um, you know, long term yet. But I do think it's going to be a job share with those two guys. And you're right. The Giants do an excellent job of managing their bullpen, managing their team. But, um, you know, their manager is a guy who doesn't care about a set closer role. So I, I think they'll, they'll be in a job share. Same thing in Seattle. I noticed you grabbed Paul Sewald. I mentioned that earlier. But there's a lot of guys who've been bandied about in the fantasy media that could be worth a look or worth drafting. Yeah, well, they have Ken Giles. So, I mean, I haven't seen him pitch yet. I'd like to see that his skill set is what it was before he got injured and missed uh, over a year. But, uh, you know, he's probably uh, – he was signed for this purpose. He, he might be 1A. Um, and then uh, Diego Castillo, fantastic skill set. Did a great job. Was the main closer for Tampa last year before he was abruptly traded to Seattle in, in what I thought was a kind of an odd trade. Seawald um, had the best one of the best seasons um, – of anybody last year as a reliever from a skill standpoint, he can close, but they don't need him to close. They may prefer him not to close. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if all these guys get a few saves. I don't, I don't know that Seattle is going to go with one guy. If they do, it'll be Giles. But I, you know, I, I'm interested this year to see how they play it. They were very Tampa Bay-esque last year, and they had so many good skill sets um, available, and they do again. So it'll be fun to watch. 
In St. Louis, uh, I thought Giovanni Gallegos had a clear run to the front of the bullpen there, but then everything I read suggests that they're going to not use him as solidly and regularly as I would like as somebody who has him on a couple of rosters. What do you think is going to happen in St. Louis? Yeah, I think be patient. I think he's going to end up being the main closer, but I think at first they're going to try different guys out because they're, they they look at Gallegos as a guy that can come in and pitch in the highest leverage, and that's his highest and best use. And that's probably correct. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. It just ends up where, you know, the other guys they have aren't very good, and then they can't really find, you know, a mix that's working. So then you end up defaulting this guy more and more to being the closer. That's that's how I see it, but it's evolving, and it's going to be it's going to be evolving over the first month or so. It's not anything we can fix here, or I don't think anybody can fix for the foreseeable future, and that is getting rid of the saves category in standard rotisserie-style leagues with category scoring and figuring out some better way to assess the contribution that relievers make in real games. And maybe you mentioned it earlier in your all-reliever league, clean appearances seems to be something that could be counted in lieu of saves. Uh, I wish there was a an easy sort of glance at the box score and see how your guy did way to approach uh, um, clean appearances or leverage or something like that, but I don't think there is. Uh, Tampa, you mentioned the uh, poster child for committee management of the bullpen. Same thing this year? Well, they just, again, having so many excellent skill sets gives you so many options in so many games. I think that a lot of what they do is they kind of plot out the week and say, okay, in these different situations, these are the guys I'll use in these order, you know, and, and then, and, and, and so from game to game, you don't even know who it's going to be um, because they have three for the, each one of those roles. Um, it, it's not good. And so, but man, what a bunch of great skill sets. The guy that I love the most in that bullpen is, is actually uh, Peter Fairbanks. I think that skill set is ridiculous. I know um, Andrew Kittredge is another one. Andrew Kittredge had uh, double-digit wins, I think, last year as well as double-digit saves. So very valuable guy. Um, you, you can find value in Tampa's bullpen. You just can't expect some lockdown 35 saves guy. That's not going to happen. Uh, Mike Marshall for our era. Uh, one of the things I, I read once about Tampa that indicates just how far thinking they are, and I don't know if you saw this, but they schedule their relievers in part also in tandem with scheduling their starters by arm angle. And they showed, uh, they had a graphic that showed all the different arm angles of all the different pitchers with one body in the center. And it looked like a second hand on a clock, you know, sweeping around from the nine o'clock angle to the three o'clock angle. And I think their belief was that if you come with a guy who's kind of almost straight overhand from the left side, you want a side armor from the right as the, as the compliment, because it's the hardest thing to adjust to for a hitter. They're really thinking down there in Tampa Bay. I like following them just for that reason. Uh, not so much in Texas, but what do you make of the Rangers bullpen as we go into 2022? Yeah, well, they're going to start with Joe Barlow, who was their incumbent. They ended with last year. His skill set is not very good um, from a strikeouts to walk standpoint. So I don't think he'll stay in the role very long. But then when I look at the rest of their bullpen, I don't know what to, I don't even know what to think or what to do. I think uh, Jonathan Hernandez will probably get in there at some point. I think uh, late in the year when he comes back from injury, I think Jose LeClerc will get in there. I think it's going to be one of those situations where everybody has eight saves and the rest of the stats are bad, though. So it's a difficult ballpen to, to grab guys from. 
I follow a lot of drafts and of the coverage of drafts and so forth, and I've been seeing um, Romero in Toronto kind of creeping up into that top tier of, of closers, of relief pitchers, even though uh, his situation, by all accounts, isn't as solid as everybody seems to think because they have options as well. But what do you make of the situation with Jordan Romero in Toronto? Well, he's been my number one this year. If I had to, if I, you know, money, no object, get one closer. Who's your guy? He's my guy. I I think he's terrific. I think he's the main guy in Toronto. I think it was a nice uh, vote of confidence when all the speculation was that they were going to sign some free agent to add um, somebody to him. I think that what they need to add are are guys to bridge to him. Not, uh, I, I just think he's terrific and he might, he, you know, if he doesn't lead the league in saves, he'll be right up there and his, uh, you know, his his other peripheral stats are going to be terrific. I can't say enough nice things about him. You have to believe that uh, given the relative strength of the Toronto rotation and the powerhouse bat- batting lineup that they have, they're going to score runs, they're going to create leads, and creating leads is where the saves come from, as obvious as it is to say. You look at a team like Toronto who could win... 95 games, maybe that's 45, 50 saves. I think you're right. I think Romero gets the bulk of them if he doesn't get hurt. And he's been hurt a little bit, at least the last couple of years. And finally, what's uh, what's going on with the bullpen in Washington? Kyle Finnegan um, is very talented from uh, strikeouts to, to walks. So, you know, you look around their bullpen and say, well, who's, you know, who is the skill set? Um, it's difficult, but I, I think, um, you know, before last season, we thought Tanner Rainey was going to be that guy. He got hurt. Um, he sometimes gets in trouble with home runs. Um, but I think among the options that they have, he's probably their best bet. I just wonder how many weeks it's going to take of having, you know, Kyle Finnegan or who knows what until they get to Rainey and give it over to him. So, you know, he may not be the guy on opening day, but I do think he'll lead their team in saves over the course of the year. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Doug Dennis, bullpens columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Doug, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes for the coming season. These are players who are good value or not so good value. Let's start with your boons. These are players who do look like they could provide good value for their fantasy rosters. In the American League, who's a batter that you're marking as a boon? I think Mitch Garver is going to hit 30 home runs for Texas as a catcher and just be, um, you know, be the top catcher in, in the American League. And so I think he's going to be highly valuable. And I don't see him going at crazy, um, you know, dollars in, in auctions and, or at a crazy spot in, the, in snake drafts. So I really like him. In the National League, who's a boon batter? So much farther down the list for me, but I think uh, Nick Madrigal, who's second baseman for the Cubs, is going to have as many plate appearances as any other player in the in the National League. He's going to rack up tons of runs. He's going to be on base all the time. He's going to have, you know, double-digit steals. He doesn't have any power whatsoever. But for somebody who's going really at the very end of, of you know, mixed drafts and, you know, not going for very much in, in NL only, um, I think he's going to be – you know, a great profit value. And of course the stolen bases themselves have value and people seem to be valuing them as we go through the draft season this year. Over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher boon for you? Well, I really like Nady Evaldi. Nady Evaldi hits every marker for me from a skill standpoint. I don't see him going at crazy numbers like, uh, you know, dollar amounts like you would for every other 
pitcher who has the same skill set he has. I guess it's because people are worried he's going to get hurt. But, you know, he hasn't been hurt for a few years now in a row, so I don't see why this year would be any different. I really like Ivaldi. And on the National League side, who's a pitcher, Boone? Well, we already talked about him a little bit. Corey Knable's on every team I could get him on um, as a closer for Philadelphia. I don't think people understand that he's going to be, you know, a solid closer, you know, and, and for, for people who are casting around saying, I need to get a 30 saves guy and I'm willing to pay any price to get one. And then Corey Knable's right there and nobody's even looking at him. I don't really know why that's happening, but I would, I wouldn't say he's an elite closer, but I would say he's as reliable as anybody else that's going this year. And as we discussed earlier, it's a good team. They're going to score runs, decent starters. Uh, there's a lot to like about Corey Knable just because of the role. Then you throw the skills in on top of it. Yeah, I th- I can easily see him getting 30, 35 saves. You go over to the uh, Baines now. These are players who are not going to be delivering the kind of value we want. Uh, who's an American League batter who could be a Bane? I'll tell you a guy that I was really on last year that I'm not nearly as on this year, and that's... Uh, Yuli uh, Guriel for the first baseman for Houston. Um, he was just, he was going for nothing last year and delivered a really nice year. Um, this year, he's going kind of in the middle of the first baseman in the AL. And I don't understand it because he's not a big power guy. He's just kind of a reliable, you know, in the lineup guy. So he's, I, but I like him. I just don't like him like I liked him last year. Uh, in the National League, how about a batter, Bain? I hate this. I hate even saying it, but um, I feel like um, Acuna is um, being counted on to be everything that you expect him to be, and he can't even play in the field yet. I mean, that is worrisome. If he can't play in the field yet, how many bases do you think he's going to steal across the year? And if he's not stealing bases across the year because he's taking care of that leg, you know, you're not getting the value you think you're getting from that guy. So, I, I really love him. I think he's one of the most exciting baseball players there is, but I do not see a value from him this year. And that's what a Bane is, not necessarily a bad player, just a player who isn't going to deliver the value that you might expect. Uh, over to the mound again, who's an American League pitcher who could be a Bane? Yeah, that's a, you know, there's so many. I can, like, how do I pick one? It's very hard to pick one. Okay, I'm just going to, because I do uh, bullpens, I'm going to pick... Joe Barlow. I don't even know. I don't think he's rosterable. I know he's expected to be a closer for Texas. I would not even put him on my on my end of my reserve list unless I was in a draft champions league. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who's a bane? Yeah, I would do the same kind of thing, but just a different bullpen. And that's uh, Dylan Floro. I don't see him being very good either. I don't see him staying in the role very long. He probably will have a little value early, but. You know, people who are buying him and hoping that he'll close um, for the year are making a mistake. Especially when you consider, as you mentioned earlier, Doug, that there's a, a closer in waiting that does have the skills he needs and Anthony Bender and certainly a few blown saves and the manager looks around and goes, hey, that guy's pretty good, you think? We'll give him a shot at it. Uh, Doug Dennis's Boone's. Mitch Garver of Texas, Nick Madrigal of the White Sox, Nate Ivaldi of Boston, and Corey Knable from Philadelphia. His Baines, Yuli Gurriel of Houston, whom I took in the American League tout, but I like the price. Uh, Ronald Acuna in Atlanta, Joe Barlow in Texas, and Dylan Floro in Miami. Gosh, Doug, this has been great. How can listeners keep up with Doug Dennis? Well, I have an article that comes out every uh, Sunday about bullpens on Baseball HQ, and I'm on Twitter at DougDennis41. 
Well, Doug, thanks a million. I knew this was going to be interesting and fun, and it was interesting and fun, so thanks for not being a bane, <laughs> delivering that boon-like value, and we'll talk to you again during the season. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Doug Dennis is the Bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. A quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But first, a public service announcement. Baseball HQ is hiring. You want to be a fantasy baseball writer? Well, BaseballHQ.com is growing our team of not just writers, but analysts and other contributors for the 2022 season and beyond. We're willing to listen to any ideas you have, and we have opportunities for several specific existing roles. First, we need a playing time analyst. That's following a specific team or teams, allocating playing time, and preparing short notes on the fantasy effects of Major League Baseball's roster moves. We need a playing time tomorrow writer, covering the American League Central. Right now, our co-GMs, Brent and Ray, are writing this one, and that means... Well, let's just say we really need a playing time tomorrow writer covering the AL Central. You'll be writing 12 to 1,500 words every week covering each team in the division with a forward focus on playing time expectations. We need an AL Facts and Flukes writer. Facts and Flukes is a signature offering on Baseball HQ and applying player metrics to assess whether the current performance of five players per week is for real. We need a minors prospects writer to synthesize scouting observations and minor league data into periodic articles that evaluate minor league players' likely future fantasy value. We're also looking for writers to help research and write short profiles of the just-promoted players who've hit the show for our daily call-ups feature. We always need research and analysis writers to pull apart the existing metrics and develop and test new ones, all while presenting actionable results for our readers. We need gaming strategy writers to provide fresh ideas on how to approach draft and auction strategies and new ways to evaluate players in various formats. We're looking for a content editor to help prepare articles for publication while maintaining consistency and accuracy. Previous copy editing experience is preferred for this one, but we really needs of this role be filled fastly. We need a tech team contributor to help manage all the data and tools on the site. Our tech stack relies on PHP web pages, MySQL database, Drupal, Amazon Web Services hosting, and, weirdly, Commodore 64s. Familiarity with HQ data and metrics is also important. Just kidding about the Commodore 64s. They work fine. Now, all of these openings are paid freelance positions with varying levels of time commitment. If you're interested, you can start by filling out the short online application at surveymonkey.com slash r slash bhqhire22. We're taking applications through Wednesday of next week, March 30th, and we're fast-tracking this process, so we'll contact the most promising candidates right away and ask them to complete a sample writing assignment or task. And we are hoping to fill all these positions by the middle of April. Remember, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash bhqhire22. And no, we're not looking for a Baseball HQ Radio podcast host, smart guy. Apply today to be part of the best fantasy baseball website in the business, baseballhq.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. 
My extra innings comment is coming up, and leading off it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Houston outfielder Jose Siri is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's an athletic outfield prospect who made his Major League debut after a solid season in AAA, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Not exactly a rigging endorsement, but maybe that's where we can find some surprising late-round value. Come on, let's face it, 16 home runs and 24 steals at AAA in 2021 when combined with a solid 318 batting average prior to his major league call-up in September points to a potentially alluring power-speed combination at the big league level. In fact, maybe 26-year-old former Cincinnati Reds prospect Jose Siri could be the answer for the Houston Astros in center field in 2022 if he can improve his plate discipline. To illustrate, despite his 318 average in 2021 at AAA Sugarland, Siri struck out 122 times while walking only 26 times in 362 at bats for Sugarland, thus producing a batting eye ratio of only .21, according to the tools and metrics available to you at baseballhq.com. Hence, our research at BaseballHQ.com signals that Siri's ultra-low batting eye ratio, when used as a leading indicator, implies an ultra-aggressive approach at the plate. Nevertheless, Siri's ultra-aggressive approach has played down a loaded toolshed, again quoting Baseball HQ's minor league baseball analyst. On the other hand, maybe it's our frequent flyer approach that's ultra-aggressive, at least in this case. That's why 26-year-old Houston Astros outfielder Jose Siri, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available late in your draft, and he probably will be. In fact, the baseball forecaster declares that Siri is worth a gamble as your fourth or fifth outfielder, but any bigger investment simply isn't worth the risk in 2022 and reportedly locked into a positional battle with Lewis Brinson and Chaz McCormick for the Astros' starting center field slot, Jose Siri is indeed a gamble this spring. But consider this. Siri's linear-weighted power index, projected at 139 for 2022, reveals above-average power that may translate, eventually, into greater home run production. Plus, Siri's statistically scouted speed, a Baseball HQ skills-based metric that measures speed without relying on stolen bases, of 137 for 2022, is indicative of above-average speed as a skill set. Accordingly, the baseball forecaster aptly pointed out that Siri's power-speed package in the minors gave him the pathway, and he showed it at the major league level too, batting 304 with four home runs and three steals in only 21 games. On that basis, hey, maybe 26-year-old Houston Astros outfielder Jose Siri is indeed worth the risk as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about some contract rescruals. I don't know if you heard the news, but the Associated Press is reporting that Major League teams have renewed the contracts of a whole bunch of players. 
They're good players, too. The renewals went to former Rookies of the Year Randy Rosarena and Jordan Alvarez, to all-star shortstop Bo Bichette, to the fine St. Louis outfielder Dylan Carlson, 2021 breakout Texas outfielder Adelise Garcia, Toronto right-hander Alec Manoa, World Series Game 3 winner Ian Anderson, and Milwaukee right-handed relief ace Devin Williams. The contracts were renewed for just short of $11.5 million. That's not each. That's all together. These young stars got an average of $715,500 apiece after their tremendous performances. And the reason they get so little is that the teams don't have to negotiate with them and don't have to go to arbitration. They just say, you're renewed. They write the $700,000 minimum salary or maybe a bit more into the blank. And bango, some of baseball's best young talent gets renewed and screwed. The minimum salary is 700 grand as a result of the new CBA signed a little while back. And I know 700 grand is a lot of money. Many people earn less than $700,000 in a working lifetime. So I'm not saying we need to feel sorry for these players, but there's something out of balance. Alvarez was the unanimous winner of the 2019 AL Rookie Award. He slashed 277, 346, 531 in 2021. That's an 877 OPS, 33 homers, 104 RBIs, and 3.0 wins above average by Baseball References version. That was top 100 among hitters, ahead of Avisail Garcia, Brandon Belt, Nelson Cruz, Michael Brantley, George Springer, Lorenzo Cain, Alex Bregman, and Kyle Seeger who averaged just over $16 million, not total, but each. Alvarez did get the biggest renewal payday, $764,600 for 2022, about 95% less than those other guys. A Rosarena slashed 274, 356, 459, an 815 OPS with 20 homers. He had 4.2 offensive war. That was 42nd in baseball and better than Yasmani Grandal, Gene Segura, Corey Seager, Justin Turner, Joey Votto, J.T. Muto, Buster Posey, Kevin Kiermeyer, Chris Bryant, Nick Castellanos, and Josh Donaldson. They averaged $17.5 million apiece. Votto himself got $25 million. A Rosarena's payday? $716,000. 95% below the average of those other guys. And Bichette? He slashed 298, 343, 484, an 828 OPS, 29 home runs, 102 RBIs, an American League leading 191 hits, and 25 stolen bases against one caught stealing. He was 5.9 wins above replacement, 14th among hitters, tied with Bryce Harper, and ahead of Sal Perez, Manny Machado, Xander Bogarts, Starling Marte, Freddie Freeman, Javier Baez, Jose Altuve, Trevor Story, and Mookie Betts, who averaged just over $21 million apiece last year. Bichette got renewed for $723,550, percent less than his war peers. Under the CBA, players can't go to salary arbitration until after they have three years of major league service, which of course we know the teams manipulate, or if they're in the top 17% of players with at least two years of service but less than three. The real money's in free agency. They don't get to that till six seasons. The minimum salary was raised in the new CBA from 570500 to 700000 the CBA also established a new $50 million annual bonus pool for players who aren't ARB eligible. Winning Rookie of the Year would be worth a $750,000 bonus. Winning an MVP or Cy Young, 
2.5 million in bonus cash. All MLB first team is worth a milli, second team half a milli, so that's pretty good, but it all means that a guy or two hits the lottery once in every long while. In the post-war era since 1946, they've given out more than 130 MVP awards. You know how many rookies won an MVP in all that time? Two. Fred Lynn in 1975 and Ichiro in 2001. Rookie of the year and Cy Young in the same year? One in all of baseball history, Fernando Valenzuela in 1981. And the majority of young stars, they still get boned. Like I said, nobody should feel sorry for a guy hauling in 700 grand to play some baseball. Hell, I'd do it for half that. But by any measure, some of the game's best young players are just plain getting hosed. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 10 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Doug Dennis, bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug is a first-rate and very knowledgeable columnist, a terrific writer, and a really great guy. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Abbott, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, or wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. And if your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with another Tuesday Tout edition. Just four more sleeps until another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. I'll talk with you Tuesday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.